Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 804 with Kevin Bame. I would have said, don't believe the hype. This is going to be harder than anything else you've done. You have to be doubly prepared for it. Spend all this time you have between selling this restaurant, opening this new one, becoming a better operator. Go stage at some different restaurants and learn from other people. Keep reading and plan for everything now. And don't enjoy too much of your own party. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant unstoppable, listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, and it feels so right to have Bento Box as a sponsor because I remember uh, beyond five years ago when I was researching my guests and finding people to have on the show, I remember there was a correlation between successful restaurants and Bento Box websites, and it just feels so appropriate to have them here sponsoring the show today. But Bento Box is way more than just websites. They're also online ordering and marketing. And you should know that Bento Box has new packages designed with the needs of new restaurants in mind. You can get everything you need to start marketing before you even open and succeed from day one. Current Bento Box customers have seen an average of 70% more website traffic, seven times more conversions, and five times their average ROI. Schedule a demo at getbento.com slash unstoppable and receive three months free. Streamline your clean faster than ever before with Ecolab Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer. Ecolab's two-in-one sink and surface cleaner sanitizer is one product that can both clean and sanitize food contact surfaces in front of house, back of house, and the third sink. Like other EPA-registered food contact surface sanitizers, it helps protect against foodborne illness. To learn more, visit ecolab.com slash unstoppable or talk to your Ecolab representative. What's up, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today. But first, quick reminders that we need your help to grow this podcast. And there's a bunch of ways you can help. You can support our sponsors. I do not let anybody sponsor the show. I really vet our sponsors. And ideally, I'm working with people who have been recommended organically on the show. And anytime a product or, sor- or service is mentioned on the show by one of our guests and you're interested, head over to the show notes and use the links to check out those tools and services because there's tracking links. And if you become a customer, I can even earn a commission. So that truly helps with the show. You can share this podcast with anybody you know aspiring to be great. And lastly, you can join Restaurant Unstoppable Network where I'm literally connecting you with my guests and we're learning from the tools and services uh, that are being recommended, the individuals, the tools and services that are being recommended on the show. So today we are talking to Kevin 
Bame from Boca Restaurant Group. And this is Kevin's second time on the show. I highly recommend you hit pause. You head over to uh, episode. I highly recommend you hit pause. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 124 and listen to the original interview. We reference it a couple times in today's show, but it's also just kind of a good way to, I don't know, go chronologically. Uh, if you are interested, there was a previous recording. So today we're really just going deeper and pulling back layers. The show has evolved a lot since getting Kevin on the show. And if you're not familiar with Kevin, like I said, co-founder of the Boca restaurant group in Chicago, Illinois, and Kevin's story is amazing. He started way back in his early 20s. He knew at the age of 10 that he wanted to be a restaurateur, but he opened his first restaurant, I think at the age of 23, and he worked for three years, working doubles for three years, putting money away to open his first restaurant. I think it was a six-table restaurant, and his story of just grit and grind and starting where you can and scaling over time. Uh, he went from Florida to Springfield, Illinois to Nashville. And then his goal, his goal, his dream was always Chicago and he made it up here to Chicago and uh, he partnered with Rob Katz and together, I think all together, He's opened, I want to say, I've heard around 30 restaurants. Currently, they have around 16 or 17 restaurants. And this is a great episode on culture, a great episode on just his story. I'm not going to talk anymore. Here it is, Kevin Bam. And with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest back on the show for a second time, co-CEO and co-founder of Boca Restaurant Group, Kevin Bam. Kevin, my man, are you feeling unstoppable today? We are too close to the pandemic for me to say that I am unstoppable. Um, I have too much PTSD. I, I, I'm, I'm, I unfortunately still feel stoppable. But there are forces. It. I survived you it. You came out the other end. Fine. I feel unstoppable. <laughs> Dude, that is what we like to hear. So we start off every episode by popping off with a success quote or mantra. I have your original written down here. You actually gave me two when we first started. Let's see if it stays consistent. What do you got for us? Jeez, I have no idea what I said the first time. <laughs> no but uh, I will say it's continue to be a student of the game. Mm, I love that. And um, I think it's pretty aligned. Do you want me to read what you said the first sure, time? Let's hear All it. Right. The key is not the will to win. It's the will to prepare to win. So I kind of feel like there's some similarities there, that constant learning. That's the will to the win is to always grow, always learn, right? Well, I, it, what's funny about the will to win is like everyone has the will to win, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's that's not special. Yeah. The, the will to prepare to win is where that all that difficulty is. Yeah. Um, and that's the hard part. The will for sacrifice, too. And yeah. I think that's a big part that came out of your first interview. I think you said three or, three or four years of working straight doubles and just putting money in envelopes, putting it away, not touching it, and just knowing that you had to sacrifice to get to where you wanted to be, which is opening a restaurant. I think you did it at the age of, what, 23? 20? Yeah, 23. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, the there's, will a, there's, win, a pay, there's a pay-in process for everything in life, you know? The will to prepare. In, in the old days, it was a pension, right? Or, yeah. Or buying something on layaway. Yeah. Does layaway still exist? I don't know. I think so. Uh, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Um, so the other thing you said is 80% of success is just showing up. So that was the second quote you mentioned. But awesome way uh, to get this thing started. And uh, 
the first episode, if you guys want to listen to Kevin's first episode, it was 124. The, the show has evolved and changed a lot since then. It was a great interview. I highly recommend going back and listening to that interview to, to kind of get caught up. I'm going to reference that first interview a lot today. So head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 124. That will bring you to our first recording. It's only a 47-minute long interview, uh, a little bit longer nowadays. But uh, let's just get into it, man. Uh, so, By the way, I was so young and naive in 2015. I want to go back and catch, <laughs> catch some of that energy. Well, for what it's worth, man, like, we got so much great feedback on your interview. So uh, you, made, oh, you made an influence. Joe Fontana, specifically, who's in Chicago, the founder of Fry the Coop. I don't know if you're familiar with the brand, yeah. but uh, you had a huge influence on him when he was first getting started for what oh, it's worth. Wow, so, that's cool. Um, so reflecting back at that episode, one of the things that uh, stood out to me a lot is that you, you I, I think I asked one of the questions I asked back then was what's one thing I could have done better or one thing I could have focused more on and that was mentorship. But you knew at the age of 10 that you wanted this. When, when do the mentors start coming into your life? Well, yeah. So I, I sort of knew at 10, you know, I told my parents, yeah, I think I want to own my own restaurant, even though I had no idea what that meant. Um, and then, you know, my mom worked at Montgomery Ward. My dad worked at a little tiny insurance company. So when, when that passion for restaurants actually turned into maybe me executing an actual, you know, pathway to restaurants, I didn't know anybody in the restaurant business. I didn't even know who to ask questions to. That's kind of why I ended up in the panhandle of Florida because I didn't know where great restaurants were. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned that because you mentioned a couple times during our first recording that it was the goal was always Chicago. The yeah. goal was always Chicago. And I, I thought to myself, why did you leave Chicago? Because you want to open a restaurant where you have roots, right? Um, and I, I, what was going through your mind back then as to why you needed to go to Florida? Well, there were a couple of things. Okay. One was weather. Yeah. I'd grown up in the cold weather and I wanted to be warm. Two, Chicago seems scary to me still. Yeah. You know, and so I, being in the big city. And so when I got down to Florida, I was like, okay, this makes sense. And it seemed like you could navigate things like licenses and permits and that sort of thing easier in this small town than the panhandle than you could in the big city. And I yeah. was a hundred percent right. And I, w- I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Chicago or uh, Florida is more of a, you know, right leaning state. So more favoring business, I'm assuming. Yeah. I mean, I was able to navigate when I was a complete moron with my girlfriend at the time to open up a six table restaurant and get a license and all those things you know, way back in 1992. Yeah. Um, so yeah, obviously it was, it, it was, it was very, um, relatively easy to be able to do that in that city. So I think I, I think I chose the right city to start with. And it was like, it was like playing in class a ball. Yeah. You know, I was like, I better make sure that I can hit a curveball before <laughs> I go to one of these bigger cities. And I was, I, I think I was right. That's cool. So back to the, the question of mentors, I mean, you spent three years working doubles, putting money away. Did you, was this in Florida or did it you- was, it was in Panama city, Florida. Okay. And you know, I had a boss at the time named Alice Masker who was very sweet. And, and, you know, I probably asked a lot of questions back in those days and, and she was great at sitting down with me and, and, and answering them. Was that Ellen? Alice. Alice. Thank you. Um, what were the kind of questions you were curious about back then? What kind of questions were you asking? I think I was asking everything. I kept a little notebook back then that was just like, I mean, I didn't understand any of it. You know, how, how does price relate to cost? You know, what kind of rent do you pay here? How much does a restaurant cost? Um, you know, how many people does it take to, to, to make a restaurant go on a yeah. nightly basis? How did she receive these questions? 
uh, she liked me. Yeah. So I, I, th- I think she, she liked my, my passion for it. You know, there was a lot of people in the panel at the time that had all worked in restaurants for a long, long time. Yeah. There were people who'd, you know, servers who'd been working for 40 years at the same restaurant. And I was this young kid who was like just super passionate about furthering my education and opening up my own place. And I think I'm, I probably stood out a little bit to how, her. How long were you with Alice? Two years. Two years. So a big chunk of the three years that you took to kind of prepare to open your own place. Yeah. Uh, and as you're saying this, I can't help but think to, I got to stress to our listeners, if you're in this mode, you're your early 20s, late teens, whatever it is, and you want to open a restaurant, go find an Alice and ask questions. They will answer your questions because here's the thing. They were once you. And they know how confusing it is and how many questions you have getting started. They're going to help you. What, what, what goes through your mind when I say that? Yeah, well, I just know that for myself or for my partner, Rob Katz, or for you know our COO, Ian Goldberg, if anybody from our company or outside of our company says, hey, will you come have a cup of coffee with me? And I want to ask you a few questions about the restaurant. I, I don't think I've ever said no to that question. Yeah. Well, you're saying, you're saying um, and, yes right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you look at, at my peers, you look at, you know, Donnie Medea or people, you know, or, or Rich Melman or Rick Bayless. These, the, those guys do the same thing, yeah. you know, or, or, you know, around the country, Caroline yeah. Stein, Naomi Pomeroy, um, you know, Eric Williams here in Chicago. All these, these are all people that sit down with people and are willing to pay it forward. And I'm talking to Eric Williams in two, uh, tomorrow, tomorrow's Friday. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm reinforcing it that they are willing to share their information. But there's another thing here, too. All those people that you mentioned, these are probably the same people that when they were getting started, they were talking to each other, right? And sharing information with each other. And it's always those who are willing to go together who go way further. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And you can speak to this better than I can because, I mean, we're, you're, you got started in the early 2000s. So what was the culture, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but what was the culture in Chicago between the restaurateurs who are at the top now? Did you know most of them? So when I got here, which was like late 2001, early 2002, um, I didn't know any operators here in Chicago personally. Yeah. You know, and my, my partner Rob had been in the nightclub game. And so when we opened up that first restaurant, I think we were on an island a bit. Yeah. And so when, you know, when Rich Melman came and sat in your restaurant to dine, your my first thought was, Hey Rich, can I sit down for a second and ask you fifty questions? Um, but what's funny is is a couple of years later, after we'd opened up a couple restaurants, I felt a little bit more comfortable to do that. And like, I I think about lettuce specifically, both Kevin Brown and and Rich, every time that we ran into him, Rob and I kind of couldn't help ourselves, but to like ask a bunch of questions. But how did he respond to that? Very well. Yeah, exactly. He he was into it. But we're also afraid to ask. And the thing is, I, I think the people who are at the top of their game in this industry know that they got there off of... The, the the next generation bringing up surrounding themselves with the next generation right and they know that it's all about building up the next generation which is why they are the way they are because they surround themselves with amazing people by building them up right yeah rich was into it yeah you know you could tell you would ask him and he would be like you know kevin let me tell you a story about <laughs> <laughs> that's great though i love that uh so let's go back to the, the state chronological let's go back yeah. you're, you're working under alice two years yep. um what were the biggest lessons she taught you you know, Alice was extremely personable mm. and she could talk to anybody and there was some sincerity to it. Mm. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't false. 
she really wanted people to have a good time and she would mix it up at tables. And Alice was, Alice was kind of a back of the house girl who that was her when she opened up her own place had to be more of a front of the house person. And I could see how far her communication skills took her in, in, in terms of building a regular clientele. And so the one thing that I could do well at that point was communicate. Okay. My food knowledge was poor. My beverage knowledge was not great. Those are all things that I could learn, but I could instantly communicate and I could see that that resonated. And, you know, at that point, I, I wasn't sure how important that was to somebody coming back to a restaurant. Yeah. I thought it was all about, it was all about atmosphere. It was all about food and it was all about, uh, you know, the, the quality of beverages you served. And, and I didn't factor in how important the way people made you feel and feel at home inside their space yeah. was. And I think until I watched her. Yeah. So you're saying communication, but I think that's kind of a double-edged sword because communication, you're communicating to somebody who you have a relationship with. Right. And that's really what I'm yes. hearing from you. It's about communication and building relationships. And is, is, am I putting words into your mouth? No, you're not at all. And, and building a relationship only happens when the other person feels like their sincerity in what you're asking them. And there's t- a big difference between me saying to you, hey, Eric, how you doing? And me saying, Eric, how are you doing? Yeah. It's nice to see you. Yeah, or just the energy you're, you're throwing off. Are you smiling with your eyes? You know, are you glowing to see that person? Like that's, that's what people are absorbing, right? And so you took me in deep contrast to these other people that worked at these restaurants that knew a lot more about food and service and when I started getting a lot of call tables at this restaurant, I'm sure the other servers were like, what the hell? <laughs> but but I was, I truly wanted all the guests in my section to have an unbelievable time. Yeah. And, and, and that was sovereign of them tipping me 20%. So I just was really concerned about people having a good time. I was sensitive that way. Why is this something that was taught or brought up in you or just innate in you? Where did this come from? For some reason, I liked being a host. Mm. You know, I think it was probably, you know, my my family was not very personable. They didn't have a lot of friends. We never entertained at the house. Um, And so because we did not do that, I kind of was a searcher for that. Mm. Filling the void. Filling the void. And, And I wanted to be that person who had great dinner parties at his house and had people over and... And, you know, I, I think back to like, you know, some of the eighties television shows that I watched and it was like, you know, you know, Rick's bar on Magnum PI and Jack Tripper was a chef and, (laughs) and, and seeing like, seeing like restaurants and fine food on TV, it just, I thought that was kind of intriguing. And I was like, here's a way that I could always be surrounded by people and entertain. I love that. I love that. So back to these lessons from Alice, sincerity, communication skills, leadership or relationships. Yeah. Um, you said that you thought that you're a good communicator aside from being sincere in your communication. What makes a good communicator? What lessons did she teach you about communication? Well, you have to be in really intuitive about what a guest is looking for. Okay. So a guest doesn't always want to talk with me at length. Sometimes a, a couple might be married for 40 years and they got nothing left to say to each other and they really want to talk to me. <laughs> and so, it, yeah, it's what are the guest needs? Um, and then, you know, talking about food and wine and your restaurant in a compelling enough fashion that they take your passion for it and it actually makes the food and the wine and the room 
feel better mm. than it might actually be. So what I'm hearing from you, communication isn't so much about what you're saying. It's a part of it, but it's what you're listening to, what you're picking up on. And you're listening with all of your senses down to your sixth sense, which is like, I would say like empathy and just like emotional intelligence, social intelligence. What is, what's the low road communication telling you? Yeah. You know, a few years ago, what I love about the welcome conference in New York is a lot of times they have speakers there that aren't necessarily in the restaurant business. And one year they had the head FBI negotiator and he was talking about how talking down you know, someone in a hostage crisis is a lot like going to a restaurant where somebody was pissed because their spaghetti was overcooked. (laughs) And a lot of that is about going to a table and just listening and talking to someone who's a terrorist is about listening. First seek to understand then (laughs) and is going to that table. And, and, and that's one of the things I was good at early on was like, if you can take your ego out of it and you can go to a table and you say, Hey, listen, I've been told what happened over here, but before I even go into it, I'd really like to hear it directly from you. Mm, I love that. I love and that. and them talking about it, just the act of them talking about it actually de-escalates. Yeah, them. like that's part of solving the problem. Just being, I think it's one of Danny Meyer's. What is it? Five. Danny Meyer. I always throw an S at the end of yeah. his name. <laughs> Danny Meyer is five A's or his four A's. Uh, or I can't remember what they are, but I yes. think that. That's, that's in there. I that's know that's one of them. One of them's active listening. Yes. And so when, yes, when, when they're telling you the story to really show that you're paying attention, you're concerned about it. Yeah. Um, it has an amazing effect on that, on that eventual outcome. Yeah. And it sounds super cliche and like, you know, you're trying to sell a book or something, but it's, but it's, but it's really true that, that in those situations, if you can turn something like that around, that's the easiest way to turn somebody into a regular customer. Yes. I love that. I love that. Um, it's writing the end of the story, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so real quick, I'm distracted because I'm interested. Uh, the, the welcome conference has that come or that happened this year? It did not. It was virtual, right? Yeah, it was virtual. There are people that did little, little clips and little video clips. I just need to know when it's coming back because I haven't never been able to go and I've been wanting to go and I need to make it the next, do you know when the next one is? So, so Donnie Medea and I started a offshoot of the welcome conference called welcome Chicago. Yeah. That's welcome conference sanctioned. It's part of that family. Um, and so we're just talking about what the, when the next time is going to be, I don't think it's going to be this year okay? Um, because you know, we had a place booked for last year and we had to abandon it, but I, but something will happen, I think in 2022, if we want to stay plugged in, what's the best, is there an email list we can subscribe to where, where can we go? You can find the welcome conference on Instagram. That's the best place to oh, find it. Yeah. All right, cool. I'll be, I will be joining this year. I, I really want to go. You're going to have me in the audience. for sure. I, I spoke in 2017 and that was one of the most magical experiences. Yeah, I've, ever I've heard it's been really great. And it's right up my alley. So, uh, now back on track to what yes. we were talking about before. So I think we, we've covered a lot with Alice and what she taught you, um, about people skills really, but what about business? Yeah. You know, the business stuff really probably came later. Okay. Like I asked little questions, but I got most of what I knew about benchmark numbers from a book called Restaurants That Work. Okay. That's the first time I've um, been on the show. I, I, th- I think that's the name of it. I still have it somewhere. It was published in like maybe, I'm going to guess, 1991, 1992. And it had um, studies on about 20 restaurants. One of them was Scoozy here in Chicago. One of them was Eureka Wolfgang Puck's restaurant. And it had food cost and beverage cost and labor cost and rent cost. And, and so I started to figure out benchmark numbers for the first time. So that very first time that I did a P&L, I was like, hmm, 
I think 54% food cost is probably bad, (laughs) you know? And so, yeah, I, and, and what I see with first time operators, a lot of times that put together these performers, a lot of times they're based on unrealistic numbers. Yeah. Like a lot of people are still using those numbers from the old days and the numbers have evolved a lot. Labor cost has gone up a bit. Um, you have to run a, a lower cost of goods sold than, than, than you did say in, in 2003, when we started here in Chicago, when it was 30% labor and 30% cost of goods sold equals 60%. And that's prime. And you need prime needs to be 60% or less The you know, all of those things I learned kind of on my own and, and a slow drip of asking questions of other operators after I'd already opened up my first restaurant. All right. I just made a note. How did you lower your cost of goods sold? And I put that in. We'll talk about this around 2015 when we get to that point. Yes. Uh, but I really want to unpackage that. Yeah. Uh, and that book that Kevin was just mentioning is Restaurants That Work, Case Studies of the Best in the Industry by Martin E. Dorf, if you're interested. Uh, so uh, going back. So you did take a year between opening your first place and leaving Alice. Was that another mentor or was that, what was the, was, what was happening in this year? I took a year between, uh, no, she, I worked there. I worked there until I started working on opening up my, my next restaurant. So I gave notice, I gave notice at the beach house and, and I probably opened up lazy days cafe. I don't know, four or five, six months later after that. All right. Uh, any other key mentors, key experiences that you think set you up for success? Or, I mean, would you call, was, what, I don't even know, would you call Lazy Days a success? Was it a. Lazy Days was a success. Okay. Yeah. It was a success because it was basically my bachelor's degree in, yeah. and, and opening up a restaurant. <laughs> and the lessons you learned, right? And the lessons I learned. Yeah, I mean, you sure. know, day one, I reached out to put a piece of bread in the oven and the pilot light had gone out and the oven blew up and caught my hair on fire. <laughs> Welcome to the industry. Stopped lunch service. I had to go to the hospital. I spent the night in Destin Hospital. Um, You know, so there was lesson number one. Um, So yeah, it cash flowed. I was able to pay myself something. I paid myself $1,000 a month. Um, We were able to pay our rent and eventually we got bought out. So all of those pieces were a success. But the other part of that was I did meet a lot of other people, not necessarily in the restaurant industry that became other mentors. Um, Kurt Tape specifically was a guy who owned Louisiana Lift Corporation who provided all the forklifts for like all the lows in the world, for instance. And he was just a, a kind of macro business mentor. Who was this again? His name was Kurt Tape. All right. He, he still lives down there. He actually eventually opened up a bed and breakfast in Grayton Beach, Florida, right near where I opened up my very first restaurant. And he was a guy who I would sit with late night over a bottle of red wine and ask like real business questions. Yeah. Let's, let's go deep here. Cause I feel like the majority of our listeners are people who are in this phase who are about to open a good chunk. I would say at least a third of our listeners are yeah. number one restaurant. Number one going into restaurant number one, and they're just hungry for knowledge. Like you would have been. Uh, so looking back at that, what were the things that you did right that set you up for success with the, the first location? Well, it starts with middle-class sensibility. Okay. So, so, so restaurants are not an easy thing to make money out of. So especially when you first start, you're not going to start and be an ace operator. So you need to do everything you possibly can to keep costs low, to not have a tremendous um, 
outlay of money that needs to go out to debt on a monthly basis. So setting that first model up for success and giving yourself a little leeway to fail is crucial. Yeah. So when you're saying uh, you're when you're looking, you're not talking about the the money your restaurant owns. You're talking about the your personal assets, your personal liabilities that you need to stay afloat. Is that where you're- you just need to stay afloat? Yeah. So it's it's the infinite game. You yeah. just got to keep playing the game. So, so I you see a lot of people get into it and they're like they're like uh oh I overestimated how much that I money I was going to make. Yeah. I'm paying way too much money in rent. Mm-hmm. I've overhired people. I'm paying people too much money. I've lost eighty thousand dollars in the first three months we're open. And, you know, this is going to be the, the shortest restaurant in history. But what did your life look like as far as aside from the restaurant? What were your liabilities? What, like what was going out? Like what were your well, expenses as a person? I, so I was kind of living without consequence because I lived in squalor. I had a shitty little apartment with my girlfriend, you know, with a, with a mattress on the floor. I'd call it low class, low class sensibility. Where it's there there you go. Low class yeah. sensibility. You know, I, I drove a car that was on its last leg. You know, we, we paid ourselves each a thousand dollars a month and then we split the tips. Um, we, nobody else worked there. Mm-hmm. We, what were you making for tips approximately per month? Uh, not that much. I'd say I was getting an extra maybe two, three hundred dollars a week in tips okay. each. So you like eighteen hundred a month is eighteen hundred a month. So two thousand yeah. a month. Yep. So I'm making like 22 grand. Maybe yeah. I made that first and you year. Said you, it was you and who else? Teresa, who was my, who was my girlfriend at the time. Okay. And we, we opened this up together. Just the two of you. Just the two of us. Six seats. Six tables. Six tables. That's right. Six tables. And so we would get up early in the morning and we would prep together and then we would do service and I would wash dishes and serve and she would cook. And, um, and so we ran that thing as thin as we possibly could. And if at the end of the month, there was money left in the checking account, we would have a fucking party. Yeah. I mean, it was, and so, but you realized real quickly, it was like, you looked at other people and I would ask people, you know, what you paid for rent? And I was like, Ooh, that seems, yeah, that seems risky. <laughs> but I mean, it's just, I feel like so many people, they have this vision for a restaurant when they're like, when, when they have the dream to have a restaurant, they start dreaming what this restaurant's going to look like and they go for it on day one and they just go so big so soon and what you what you did to get here? Look where you are today. I think I read somewhere that did, are you involved in thirty total restaurants? Well, my how many restaurants have I opened my entire life? I don't know, somewhere around thirty. Yeah, and I, I feel like you've taken you're fifty now, right? Yeah, you're twenty almost twenty five, twenty seven years to get to your vision. Yes, right. It does not happen overnight. No, and you have a better odds of getting there by going as small as possible. So. You have it's all about controlling your liabilities, not like what's going out, not what's coming in. Well, I think you can think about it these days too. Is like, like first of all, you can make a big name for yourself in a small restaurant. Yeah. So you don't have to think about making some huge splash and playing Madison Square Garden the first time out. Mm-hmm. You can play the corner pub and still get a massive review from from a huge place. And writers love to take underdogs under their wings. So I'm always like, open up something small, pour over every single plate. Be so nice to every single guest that people can't help but come back to your yeah. restaurant. That was my follow-up question. How do you become a six-table like sensation? Like, What's the secret to doing that? Well, I don't know if we were a sensation or not, but I will say that the, the people in the community, the locals, liked us, and I think they liked the story. They yeah. were like, God, what a nice little young couple that yeah. opened up their own restaurant, and they cheered for us. And so there we we were there every night. We were really nice to people. Teresa cooked good food, 
and we were like, you know, hidden in the shade of seaside Florida yeah. um, on a back deck and people were like, that's somebody I can root for. Yeah. And I think it goes back to how we started this conversation, sincerity and relationships and communication. Just, just It's about the relationships, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll just tell one seaside Please. story. So I, I was living in Panama City and I wanted to impress Teresa. And so she had shown me seaside and I was blown away by it. It was about 75 miles away from Panama City. And we drove out there one night and we went to Josephine's bed and breakfast and Josephine's was the fanciest restaurant in seaside. It was actually like he, you know, the maitre d' wore a tuxedo. It was in a bed and breakfast and we, we went in there and they had Giridons and, and when he sat me, there was only one two top left in the restaurant. There was like, there was like five two tops and you know, five tables. And they, they gave me the one right next to this couple who was drunk and screaming and rowdy. And it was like, and I was, and I was bummed because I was trying to have this romantic night with my girlfriend and when the maitre d' gave me the menu, he winked at me. And when I opened my menu, there was a post-it note inside the menu. And it said, Dear Mr. Bame, the guy on your left is an asshole. He will be gone soon. <laughs> Until then, bear with us. Love, Bruce. Oh, I love that. And that told me everything I needed to know about Seaside. And it taught me this massive lesson in hospitality. Before that, I thought it was all about rules, you know serve from the left side with your left hand yeah. to your body. It's open intimidating. To yeah. And then I was like, no, 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 you can do whatever you want. Yeah. And that opened up this whole neuro pathway for me of creative ideas that I could do on a nightly basis. I can do whatever yeah. I want. And that's the cool thing. That's the, the beauty of being human is that you, like you said, opening up those narrow pathways that the, this world that we live in, for some reason we feel like it's rigid, but it's not like it's, it yeah. is open for whatever you can think of to be unique, to do whatever you want and go for it. Cause it's going to set you apart. I learned about the, the Proust questionnaire around that time. And you know, Marcel Proust had this questionnaire that he said, if you filled it out, it would kind of show you who your true self yeah. was. And at my very first restaurant, when people got done with dinner, I would give them the Proust questionnaire and all of the best women's answers would go in the men's bathroom and all the best men's answers would go in the women's bathroom. And that was just like one of those things I was like, there's no rules here. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> That's awesome. And that was, and people kind of dug it. It was yeah. a fun thing to do at the end of the meal. Yeah. You still opened three other restaurants before coming, or you were in three other cities, I should say, before coming back to Chicago and partnering up with your, your business partner, Rob. Um, but before we get into that, any any we talked a lot about what you did right. Um, I know you were working for three years, putting money away for this point. How much did this six table restaurant cost? What was the the? the and if I ask personal questions along the way, no, I usually tell this. All good. It's all because this is where the this is where we really learned, right? Yeah, it costs like, cost, cost fifty grand. Fifty grand. Wow. Um, and how much of that did did you were you able to cover that with all the money you put away? Yeah, that's amazing. That's but it was awesome. completely out of money when we opened. Yeah. Um, but I, I just kind of want to paint that picture that starting small, right. And, mm -hmm. and just, and just having a goal and starting small, uh, what were, were there any big mistakes you made with the first restaurant that are worth bringing <laughs> to the conversation that like you can help? I don't, prevent know, if we, other I don't know if we have enough time what are on the, this what's podcast. The biggest one or the, the, the two that come to mind that like you can save our listeners just heartache if you were to give them a the heads up on, on this one thing. Well, two I think that I was probably, e I, I was, I was so green and so naive and so moronic at that point. So, I mean, to be totally honest, like at the beginning we weren't tracking anything, you know, I didn't, I wasn't tracking sales. I didn't know what costs were going out, what was coming in. All I knew is, was there money left in the bank account at the end yeah. of the day? And th th things rarely 
are able to be shaped or achieved without intention. Yeah. So we we had no goal. We had no budget. There was no intention in that regard, except let, let's try to be the best restaurant that we can and let's hope some money's left at the end of the day. But, you know, and the, but there's, there's so many... There's so many dumb things along the way. Like, you know, we had a chest freezer outside because there was no room in the kitchen, but then it got really cold and, you know, water got into our porous chest freezer and everything <laughs> froze and I'm in there trying to chip all the stuff away. I mean, so many bad things. But I, I think from, from, a, from a macro standpoint, it was, there wasn't enough planning and procedures on a daily basis. Yeah, I think that's every first restaurant. Um, yeah. You, and you don't know what you are until you know, too. Like, you have to get into it and kind of figure things out. Yeah, but don't do not do anything by chance mm. and sweat every single detail. You know, we have a critical path that we use within our, within our company that's like the 855 things you have to do to open up a restaurant. And it's really detailed, you know, and it's everything you could possibly think of to open up a place. And within each of those little details... There's a bunch of other details. Oh, I love that. I'm tempted. I would love. I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I would love to see that if I'm able to. I'll, sh- I'll, sh- I'll, sh- I'll, sh- I'll show it to you. Yeah, that'd be incredible. Um, and so then you assign all of those individual things to the right person for that task. Mm. And you know, I'm so grateful, and we're so lucky to have all these smart people that work within our company. That I know that I can, you know, toss this thing to Ian Goldberg and this thing to Jamie Madonia and this thing to Julie Rue and this thing to Abby Kreitzler. And they're, they're all experts at their specific field. Yes. But when you open up, you have to be an expert at all of those mm-hmm. things. And that's where this mentorship and all these questions come into play. Yeah. And you might say, well, I, I, you know, what is your, what's your maternity leave policy? I don't know. And your first question is, what's everybody else doing? <laughs> and that's where all these questions come up. And so there's a pretty steady flow of conversation that goes on within this restaurant community, specifically here in Chicago, where I'm constantly talking to a lot of people and figuring out what they're doing about something. Yeah. And, uh, and I have to give a shout out to a mutual friend. I'm pretty sure you know this man, uh, Rudy Mick from Mick Consulting. He wanted me to say hello to you, by the way. Yes. And ironically, I'm partnering with him right now where, where we're going through a costing and, and profit one-on-one course. And I'm obviously sitting through this course. He's teaching me too. But the big takeaway up to this point is track everything, everything like d- daily track everything. And that's the, the, the seems to be the biggest, what this course is hinging on when it comes to profitability and costing is just tracking. And everything. Eric, make that P and L your own. Yeah. If you look at our P and L, it is not something that gets spit out by QuickBooks or by great plains accounting system. It is, something that we built that tells us all of the information that we need to know. Yeah. It's one thing to look at a PL. It's another thing to read it, absorb it and understand the changes you need to make it make sense. Yeah. And how you have to pivot and swerve to make the numbers make sense. So we create analytics for everything. Mm-hmm. You know, what is, you know, uh, uh, cleaning chemicals divided by sales, you know, trying to figure out what the benchmark numbers are on everything so you know when there are inefficiencies, you know when there are problems, yeah. you know when there's shrinkage, um, and the technology has never been better. Yeah, and the other variable, of the, the, the power of tracking all these things is the, the trust and track balance, where if you can track all these things, now you can trust so much easier because you have something to, to, to look at just to make sure the job is being done right because you, you have the data, and that just makes trust so much better. There's anti-theft software that looks yeah. that looks at everything that can look at, 
you know, how many times a bartender hit no sale, you know, was the timing of, a, of someone doing a void on a check. Um, how many times a manager's opened up a closed checkout and it takes all of that information and gives them a percent chance that they're stealing or not. Yeah. But we're recording this course live right now. We're, like, And I said, we are recording it. If you guys are interested, um, it will be available. If you're listening to this and you're think, saying to yourself, I'm not doing these things that they're talking about right now. Um, just reach out to me, Eric at restaurantstoppable.com. I'll tell you how you can get that course. Um, let's move on. Cause I want to make sure we touch on blue mountain beach, uh, Springfield, Illinois yeah. in Nashville. Uh, I mean, obviously there's a lot to unpackage here, but reflecting back, I mean, why, what was the purpose of uh, ending Lazy Days Cafe if it was going so well? So, so Lazy Days, you know, Lazy Days was fine, but, you know, it's, it's hard to be in a relationship yeah. and work together 16 hours a day mm-hmm. and the relationship suffered for that. Yeah. And, you know, Teresa went and opened up her own place. After that, I opened up my own place. They were side by side. Um, and I opened up a wine bar, sushi bar, rock and roll bar. Nice. I had gone and worked at... Uh, a restaurant called Harbor Docks in Destin. They had a sushi program there. Um, you know, I had really gotten into wine. I was like, I want to do a hundred wines by the glass and I want to have a stage and do live music. And I just, I took my three things that I liked and shoved them all together. <laughs> this, this wasn't Blue Mountain Beach, was it? It was Blue Mountain it, Beach. It was Blue Mountain Beach. Okay. Yeah. So just, just down the road in Seaside on 30A, it's a bike shop nowadays, but okay. in 1995, it was a booming wine bar. Okay. Um, and it was super fun, super successful. And, you know, and at a certain point in 1997, I was getting this pull that it was maybe time to like move on, go somewhere else. And somebody happened to make me an offer on my place, a good one. I took it and they wanted me to sign a non-compete. And so I packed up, I sold and packed up shop. Okay. And this is when you moved back up to Springfield, Illinois. I moved back to my hometown. Actually, I looked in Chicago first. I was like, maybe it's time for me to go to Chicago. And I remember I dined at Gordon. I dined at a restaurant called Gypsy and I was like, I am not ready for this. (laughs) These guys are are operating at a much higher level than I can operate at. So I'm going to stay in my hometown and I think this will make my mom really happy and I'll stay in, in my hometown, open up a restaurant in Springfield. And I'm so glad I did because that was the first big restaurant I opened. It's still open. It, it opened in 1998. It's been open for 23 years. Indigo Restaurant, 3013 West Lindbergh Boulevard. I do not own it anymore, but um, the Novels who own it are very nice people. And I opened up a 130-seat restaurant and really got to feel for the first time what it was like to manage a full staff and to be a mentor and to give pre-shift every night and to serve family meal every single night. Um, you know, and to, to manage the finances of a restaurant that put up a real number. Um, and so that was kind of my, if, if Indigo and lazy days were my, um, were my bachelor's degree and on 30 a then indigo restaurant in Springfield was my master's. Okay. Um, back to uh, blue mountain beach. Uh, yeah. What was the name of that restaurant again? It was called Indigo. It was Indigo, Indigo Wine Bar. Gotcha. Indigo. Uh, you said it was it was a lot of fun. It was a big success. Yeah. Back to what we did with the first restaurant. Like, what did you do right? What were some of the mistakes you made that you can pay for it? You know, in the beginning, I I thought that I could execute my own food program, and you know, I couldn't. How many seats was the second restaurant? It was about sixty seats. Okay. 60, 70 seats. So I'm like three times yeah. as much as... And the- I was like, I was like, you know what? I can do my own appetizer menu and execute it out here from the corner and work out of this one fridge. And, 
you know, it, it was not set up for success yeah. and it, it seemed amateurish compared to everything else. Okay. Everything else that we were doing was at a pretty high level. We had great music in there. Um, we had a hundred wines by the glass. We had a great wine uh, list. I had somebody build this beautiful bar and then we had this like kind of bullshit food program Okay, that I was trying to execute and it was like, uh, w- no, it wasn't sushi yet. Okay. So at this point we were trying to do something else and then I was like, you know what? I'm going to hire two sushi chefs and we're going to, and so once we did that and we hired Glenn and Scott to our, our two sushi chefs and they were really great. Then the whole place came together. What did you do differently with the second restaurant that you didn't do with the first restaurant as a lesson learned from the first restaurant? Well, I think it started with the fact that I was actually like, you know, tracking sales and, you know, and, and figuring out what money was going in and what money was going out. And, you know, we, you know, Jeff, my partner at it and I were, you know, paying ourselves on a regular basis, you know, not just when we thought we had enough money left in the account. Was there a, a, a practice that you're using to make sure you were paying yourself first? Like, how are you managing cash flow? You know, I, I was just like handwriting basically a P and L okay. at that point. You know, I just was like, okay, here's, you know, I didn't understand the difference between cash and accrual or anything like that, but I just was looking at cash flow and looking on a 30 day basis and here's how much money we spent. Here's how much money we have left. Um, you know, I wasn't doing inventory or anything like that. So it was still very raw, but at least I kind of knew where I stood all the time. I knew what we had to do on a monthly basis in order to cover our nut. And so I, I, at least I had more security. Um, and it wasn't until it, it, and we can talk about this later. It wasn't until we got to Boca where really started to tighten the screws on finances. We're we're getting there and there's just so much to unpackage. So thank you for bearing with me. Uh, When you say cash versus accrual, what is that? What is the difference? Well, you know, cash, a cash basis is just what comes in and what comes out as opposed to, you know, uh, when it was, when it was invoiced, um, when the expense was actually booked. Um, and so look, look, th- those, those two things, you, you really want to, you really want to look at, uh, at finances within the restaurant business based on when they happened, not when you paid them. Okay. Got it. Um, and are you still using restaurants that work case studies, uh, for, you know, that, that, that case studies book to no. learn or what else were you using at this point? No, that was, I mean, that was the original baseline, but then, you know, it kind of, you know, we came up with a system that was 30% cost of goods sold, 30% labor, 4% occupancy, 16% silo. It blows my mind that you can remember these numbers. Yeah. <laughs> it was everything else yeah. left 20% profit. Okay. That was what we were, that's what we were looking so at. So was the back goal 20? Days. Did you reverse engineer? The goal was 20%. Okay. Back that's in what those I was days. getting. That's what I was hoping would come is, is this idea of profit first. 1990, first. 1995, we 20% profit was an achievable goal. Yeah. And this is something I've just started doing myself and I'm really transparent. I try to pay myself every month. Um, that comes to my checking account. $5,000 is what I try to pay myself, which sounds like a lot of money. I don't think it is personally after, you know, it's enough to like be able to do what I do and like pay the bills and stuff like that. Um, but I didn't start doing that. Like now it's like that, that's the first thing I take, you know, and then everything else that's left over goes towards, and like that's what you know what I feel like I need to be able to travel to live a comfortable life to to cover my liabilities. My I'm two hundred thousand dollars in debt, you know. So like that's 
but I just started doing this two years ago. And when I started just taking first, first tax, then profit, and that just goes away. And then everything that's left over is what I have to run the business. The rest of it is your declining budget. Yeah. And you work off of that declining yeah. from what you have. And left. that's cash flow. That's what determines your growth. That's right. Uh, and there's a great book out there, Profit First, Mike McCallowitz. Uh, we did a whole course on Profit First. If you guys are interested in learning more about that, uh, it's a powerful way of doing business. So we covered a lot with the second restaurant. Uh, you move back up to Springfield, Illinois to be with your closer to family and to, to go for your first big restaurant in a market that you thought was more within more reasonable for you. Is that kind of safe to say? Is that what I picked yeah, up? Yeah. You know what? I, I thought about Chicago for a second and then I'm in my hometown and something yeah. about it felt like this is kind of cool. I Where can come is- back to Springfield, central Illinois. Okay. And it was kind of cool. I, I get to come back home and you know, this little, you know, Unknown back. kind of poor kid from Springfield coming <laughs> back to open up a restaurant. I was like, yeah, you know what? Let's, uh, let's, let, let's give this a shot. And it was really fun. And we killed it. Okay. We killed it. Any same thing. I'm not, I want to kind of get to the current time, start talking about Boca, but any big lessons with this group that, that stand out that you So, so this is the first one that I like really, it was, it felt like a real restaurant. The other ones were kind of stuck together with bubble gum. And this one was like, okay. I want the walls to look like this. This is the art that I want on my walls. This is the kind of carpet I want. I want these two living room sections on the side. I'm going to go find a bar and refinish it. My mom and I bought a bunch of antique chairs and we, you know, put new fabric on them and we reinforced them. And like this thing was built with our hands, but it looked like a real restaurant. So what was different in your life that let you do this versus the other ways? I had enough money from selling my second restaurant that I could really take my time and build it exactly like I wanted to do it. Still on a budget, but you know the, the one of the great nights of my life. This is probably the top ten great nights of my life. We finished the restaurant, and I was sitting in it, and I was so excited about the way that it looked. And I couldn't find a chef in Springfield yeah. to save my life. I'd had one who started working for me, and he quit. He thought it was too ambitious for this him. This is nineteen ninety eight. Right? Nineteen ninety eight. Yeah. And so I'd called a chef friend of mine named Scott Alderson, and Scott had worked for Jeremiah Tower at Stars in San Francisco, in the in the uh, you know, in the late 80s, and he was a great chef. He was on Discovery Channel's Great Chef Program. I'd met him in Seaside. I called him, and he said, I'll come up and help you for a couple of weeks. He walked in the door that night, and he was like, holy shit, man. This is a real freaking restaurant. <laughs> this looks amazing. He was so blown away, and I just was beaming with pride. Because it was a true reflection of like who I was. And, you know, you throw yourself out there and you're like, oh, God, are people going to laugh at this? And the day before the mailman had come in and he was like, when are you going to finish the restaurant? And I was like, it's 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 finished. And he's like, well, you know, you could put a drop. We had an exposed ceiling. He was like, you know, you could drop a ceiling in here for almost nothing. And I'm like, no, that's the way I want it. And he's like. Well, it's different, I guess. So <laughs> that was the first feedback I got. Scott's was like, oh, my God. And it and it and it was so well received, especially with like a lot of the lobbyists and state senators at work that came down from Chicago. Yeah. And we instantly were like really successful down there. And it was just, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And I, as I'm listening to you, I just, and this is your first restaurants, 2000, or sorry, 1992. Yeah. This is six years later. Yeah. You started with a $50,000 restaurant. Yeah. And I, I think the, the, the thought that's going through my mind right now, are you familiar with Moore's law? No. It's basically states that, Technology and things in general tend to double over time, improve double over time, but slightly more than double, like exponential. And I think that that's a reflection of human growth because all these things that we create, 
are are byproducts of human, you know, we're they're from us, right? And if you just stay with it and you constantly improve, it's exponential, you know, because I'm guessing that this restaurant was more than fifty thousand dollars. It was, yeah. Um, so I, you don't have to tell us the numbers and everything, but I'm just it's the idea that if you just show up when you start where you can and you just grind and and you put that money away and you constantly improve, like it, the the growth is exponential. What goes through your mind when I say that? Yeah, no, this is, you know, well, back in those days, everything that I had to spend, I wasn't holding anything back. I was going to spend everything that I had on that next restaurant. So you're totally right. I was taking like, I, I put 50,000 in the last restaurant. I'm going to put all hundred in this next restaurant. Exactly. I was 99% artist and 1% businessman at that stand yeah. at that point, by the way. But it was paying me back when I did that. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, so I, so I put that in and then that restaurant, you know, it did, it did three times the amount of sales that the restaurant did before. Yeah. But you look at it. So year one, 50,000 and just looking at the numbers, right? 50,000, a hundred thousand, 200,000, 400,000. And I'm not saying that this restaurant was an $800,000 restaurant, but I'm guessing it was somewhere between year three and year five in that ballpark, you know, and that got you to the point where you could make three times the amount of revenue. So you got to look at it like that. You got to be patient. You got to slowly scale over time. Um, any big takeaways be, beyond what you share with us with this restaurant that you think set you up for success? Things that you're doing differently. It was your first creation that was like an extension uh, of. I think the smartest thing we did was we looked at the landscape of people who were working in restaurants in Springfield at that at that point, and there was a lot of people just like the Panhandle of Florida who'd worked in restaurants for a long time, but they weren't excited about it. You know, I was interviewing people and I, you know, I've worked here for 15 years, but they, they just seemed tired and they seemed tired of the restaurant business. And I said, I'm not hiring any of these veterans. I'm only going to hire people who it's their like first job working in the restaurant business. And we had restaurant school, but all these people bought into what I was saying. And I was giving these big, you know, like Newt Rockney like speeches, like we're going to bring the world to Springfield, <laughs> Illinois, but they bought into it. Yeah. Got to drink the Kool-Aid. They drank the Kool-Aid yeah. and People walked in and I kept, people kept asking me to go, did you ship these people in? You know, where did these people come from that you have working here? And we had this like young, beautiful, vibrant staff and they were so into the restaurant. We were in a foxhole together and that kind of foxhole mentality where, you know, I sat everybody down and I was like, I go, I want everybody to hear to think of like themselves as partners in this restaurant, mm. because if we're better it's going to bring more customers in and the people in the front of the house, you're going to make more money and in the back of the house. If we make more money, I'm going to pay you more money. We're all in this together. We're yeah. all partners in this restaurant and where, they, they bought into it. Where did you get that mindset? I just was looking for ways to motivate people. And so this was just me like shooting, uh, shooting from the hip. Yeah. That sounds, honestly. A, that sounds a lot like Tom Walter. Tasty Catering. I don't know if you're familiar. I'm not. He's a Chicago-based catering company, Tasty Catering Chicago. He's the author of It's My Company Too. And the the idea of that is entangled organizations where everybody feels like a partner. Everybody feels yeah. like the, it's theirs too. Um, and that that's so powerful. Uh, how do you get that culture? What do you have to do? And I think the other thing that I pull from this is you, you started focusing more on getting good people with no experience, but focusing on training them. Well, first of all, you, you have to treat everybody with respect or they're, they're going to think what you're saying is just lip service. Mm. So secondly, you got to be part of the game. I was in there and bussing tables and running food and, and I was right there with them. Um, and three, like consistency of behavior, you know, 
you know, I was in there every single night. They knew that I was fighting for them. So they fought for me. Um, and so that, that initial staff, um, you know, we still have like a Facebook group together and we all talk and I'm friends with all those people still. I'm lifelong friends with a lot of people who initially worked at that restaurant. I have a good friend named Tracy Wells who owns a great landscaping company in, in North Carolina. And she said to me, you know, five, six years ago, she's like, she goes, I still think that's probably the most fun I ever had was working, was working in Springfield, Illinois in 1998 and 99. How'd you keep it fun? We did a lot of special things. We did, you know, a Frank Sinatra dinner one night. Um, uh, we did a Titanic dinner where we served the same menu that we they served the last night in the mm-hmm. Titanic. Um, uh, you know, I was friends with people, songwriters from Nashville who I met in Seaside, like Kim Carnes that sang Betty Davis Eyes. She came up and did a concert at the restaurant one night. We were constantly trying to push the envelope. We bought all the Charlie Trotter's cookbooks and we had a Charlie Trotter night and we, we, we did a, we did a, a tasting menu from his cookbooks. So you know, events. We did events. Yeah. And so just when people got and got bored and into that same rhythm, it was like, nope. Let's let's mix this up a little bit. Especially in today's age, I think events are so important. We kind of touched on this during 2015, our first interview. Social media can't just be like, here's today's specials. It's got to be a story. You know, you got to bring people in. And when you have an event, you have something to celebrate. There's context, right? And that creates better media. I mean, were you back then, though? I mean, this isn't, I mean, it's still exciting, but you weren't creating media around this. You weren't. Well, I was. You know, I thought if I'm bored in the restaurant, people will see it. Mm. And so it was about if I can keep myself and my staff excited, then the people, same thing, the people will feel it. I love that. And so on a monthly basis, we did something. And if you go into Indigo Restaurant in Springfield, Illinois, still today, on the middle column is a copy of the poster of the Titanic dinner <laughs> from, from, from 1998. Um, and it resonates. And I still run to people's Springfield. And I was there the night of the Titanic <laughs> dinner. Um, and so, yeah, it just, it just showed me that like, keep everybody interested. And the only way to do that is constant evolution. Mm. And I've worked with some great chefs like that who constantly every month do something, you know, it's, you know, paint a wall, new piece of China, move some furniture around, change the menu, get new wines on the wine list, whatever it is. Constant change has an effect on the way people think and feel. And as much as people like consistency in their neighborhood restaurant, being able to go there and feel comfortable and feel at home, you can do both of those things. You can have that consistency of warmth. You can have that consistency of staff members. And at the same time, there's something a little bit exciting that happens every once in a while that just keeps them interested. Is there anything you do in your business to make to make constant growth just automatic? You know, like or like how do you build that into your your culture, this idea of constant growth? And like other I don't know, is there an alarm that goes off every 6 months that says that says you haven't changed anything? Like what do you do? No, it's it's hard when you get bigger. Yeah. It's easy when you're in the same space all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was when it was just one restaurant all the time and you know, as much as as people think that Boca proliferated very very quickly, there was a long time in my career when I only had one restaurant. I had one restaurant in '92, 
I had one restaurant in 1995. I had one restaurant in 1998. I had one restaurant in 2003. Yeah, I was going to say, all the way to- So all the way to where Landmark yeah. opened in 05, I was only, that was the first time I ever had two restaurants at the same time. Yeah. And so I was in those four walls all the time. So I would get bored. Yeah. Now, when you had multiple restaurants, you stopped thinking about it as much. And so, but you would notice it when restaurants would plateau and you'd be like, hmm, what's wrong with this restaurant? Mm-hmm. So and, you're also tracking like a mofo at this point too. So you have a lot of information data yes. to let you know when something's starting to flatline. Yeah. Like, like girl and the goat has been open for, let's see, what do we turn? We 11 years. It's 11 years old. It was the first restaurant that I ever saw that went up in sales every year for 10 straight years until the pandemic year. Damn. And so there was something about that restaurant that always kept it fresh, kept it exciting. You know, we would do an after James beard party and, you know, they would spend three months planning that party. I mean, Stephanie is definitely somebody who gets bored very easily. So she's constantly trying to change it and make it exciting. Yeah. And you see that. it in the sales. Yeah. Um, so the only thing we haven't really mentioned, and I don't want to spend a ton of time here because I really do want to start unpacking, starting like, you know, current time, uh, the evolution of Boca. But real quick, um, your your last restaurant before joining forces with Rob was in Nashville. You're, you're getting closer and closer to your dream of Chicago, right? In Springfield. And then... Now I'm going to go to Nashville. I'm going to do, I'm, I'm going to go further away again. What my least, on? my least favorite story. <laughs> um, I know I opened up it, probably, probably the story that shaped me the most though. You know, I, so I, I opened in Springfield. It's a big success. I sell that too. And I really, I remember sitting down and thinking, you know what? I figured this whole thing out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I am so freaking smart. That's when it gets I tricky. have got this thing down. <laughs> and then, you know, I opened up a restaurant. It was, was told by the universe very quickly that that is not the truth. Um, and so, you know, Nashville was poised to be a success. It was, you know, we were on the cover of the Nashville scene a month after we opened. It said the new, new Nashville. And the centerpiece of that was six degrees and how we were changing Nashville. And it was a success. But, I didn't know how to run a 10,000 square foot restaurant. What was I was the previous way restaurant? over my head. Springfield. Springfield yeah. yeah Springfield what, was 3,500 feet. Okay. So more I went from 3,500 feet to 10,000 square feet. Yeah. And I had 135 employees and, Jeez. and it, and I just got, I got overran. What, what was it that got away from you? Oh my gosh. Where do we start? You know, uh, I still coming out of Springfield was not a systems guy. And, you know, Boca Restaurant Group is all about systems and and all about people in the right places. And here's what you do when this happens and our financials are super tight. And and at that point, I still didn't know to do that. Like the way that I had run my restaurants, even though it had gotten a little tighter every single time, was just kind of like, you know what? It's, we were success despite ourselves. It was, it sounds, I mean, you were doing, you were tracking things, but it sounds like a very much culture driven operation totally. so that you're doing which is i mean I, you can run a restaurant on culture i believe culture eats systems and processes but you need both you, you know do. you do need both especially if you're scaling and you're getting bigger like you can't be everything to everybody at that scale yeah. you know um i stopped being a student i stopped evolving i was not a i was a i was a oh, i was a worse operator in nashville than i was in springfield um and, you know, and, and this business, if you don't treat it with respect, will light you up. Mm-hmm. So 
was just so many moving parts at, at, at such a big location that it was just more than you could handle for so, yeah so so many moving parts and you know we were so busy in the beginning but you know it's not how much money you gross it's how much money you keep mm. and we were doing more sales than i'd ever seen before but we weren't keeping any of it yeah. because there weren't enough controls so okay. i had people that were stealing from me and you know I'd thought just because I hired somebody to run the run the office that it was going to be tighter than mm. it was before, but it wasn't necessarily. And so, and uh, you know, I didn't understand before I went to Nashville that they had this massive liquor tax that you had to pay. And it's so ridiculous. It, it yeah. is, and so our our wine lists weren't priced properly, and it was you know it's it's it, it was. So you weren't charging enough to cover the tax. No, we it was it, it, yeah. The, I mean, the way that this restaurant was was built and planned for and structured is an, was an embarrassment. Mm -hmm. And so like when I look back on it now, it was, and we built a beautiful restaurant and it's, you know, it's Zambuca jazz cafe and has been since in Nashville. And I walk in there and it's a great deal of my build out inside that place. And I used to be bitter about it. And now I'm the exact opposite because coming off of that, when I got to Chicago, it was like, okay, Wait, I don't understand. You used to be better about it. What do you I used to be bitter it? about it. Bitter. Thank you. You know, I, I, I got to Chicago and I had a big chip on my shoulder that, you know, and, you know, it, when you fail at something, most people are bad detectives about it. You know, they, they don't look at the they don't look at the prime suspect, which is yeah. themselves. Yeah. They look at everybody else, which is what I did. Yeah. And I'm able to look back now and say, hey, man. The buck stops with you, brother. Mm-hmm. You you did this whole thing. So the the, the follow up question was: If you're giving yourself advice, looking back, knowing what you know now, yeah. the younger version of yourself, what would you have done different? And it sounds like you would have you would have owned a little bit more of it. I would have said, "Don't believe the hype." Yeah, this is going to be harder than anything else you've done. You have to be doubly prepared for it. Spend all this time you have between selling this restaurant, opening this new one, becoming a better operator, go stage at some different restaurants and learn from other people, keep reading and plan for everything now. And don't enjoy too much of your own party. I love it. And six degrees is a whole lot of fun. And, you know, it's easy to get, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you look and, you know, opening night, you know, George Strait's there and Trisha Yearwood singing on your stage. And you're like, you know, made what? It. <laughs> check it out. I made it everybody. Um, and, and so, yeah, so that's, that's, that's what happened. And like so many cool experiences that happened there, you know, the, the first time little big town ever performed live was at my restaurant. That's cool. You know, I mean, you know, you know, Keith Urban came in every single week, you know, I mean, it was like, it was really fun. I got to see a lot of great music and we did a lot of fun stuff, but it was short lived. It was only open a year. Um, and you know, the bounce from that though, was that was my doctorate. That was, you know, my, my, if I wrote a thesis, it would have been on failing and what I learned from it. And, and what, I learned a million things. What's the topic of your thesis? Topic of my thesis was, should be continue to be a student of the game or the game will end for you. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I've loved this conversation up to this point. I think we're going to take our first break after an hour of recording to uh, thank our sponsors. And we'll be right back to start breaking apart 
uh, Boca restaurant group. Who wants to be more efficient and cleaner? Everyone. So streamline your clean faster than ever before with Ecolab Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer. Ecolab's two-in-one Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer is one product that can both clean and sanitize food contact surfaces in front of house, back of house, and the third sink. Like other EPA-registered food contact surface sanitizers, it helps protect against foodborne illness and also kills SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19 in 15 seconds and norovirus the flu in common cold viruses in 30 seconds helping you reduce risk simplify your procedures and help protect your team your guest and your reputation with ecolab sink and surface cleaner sanitizer visit ecolab.com slash unstoppable or talk to your ecolab representative we're back the year is 2002, 2003 at this point. Uh, you are, you know, uh, brushing yourself off after the, I don't, I don't know if you want to call it a failure, but the lessons learned uh, with Nashville. Uh, you're, you're, I think you had a mutual friend with Rob that connects. Like, what, where are we at this point? Take us, take us Yeah, down. so I, I leave Nashville with my tail between my legs. Um, I had an opportunity to do something else in Nashville. I had an opportunity to do something in Springfield. I had an opportunity to do something in Florida. And my mom actually said to me, don't go backwards. You'll always regret it. You're, she goes, your special skill is you know how to make stuff happen. Go up to Chicago and make something happen. Mm-hmm. And so I had two meetings. Um, I met Michael Cornick for an hour and talked and then I met with Rob, who was a friend of a friend, um, and uh, my my best friend James Belichier since I was three years old, and his his wife Trisha. Um, there, uh, Trisha worked for a guy who was best friends with Rob Katz, and so they said you guys should meet. Rob was in the nightclub business, wanted to get in the restaurant business. I was looking to get into the restaurant business in Chicago, and I didn't know Chicago. And we met for a cup of coffee that was supposed to be like 15 minutes, like a quick, like, Hey, you know, what are you looking for? Maybe we could work together. And we sat there for four hours. Okay. What was it about the initial impression of Rob that was super appealing to you? Well, we just, you know, you just have a rhythm with somebody in a chemistry right away. We were just laughing and he had been to my place in Nashville and I'd been to one of his bars in Chicago. And so we were just talking about sports and life and restaurants and laughing and having a great time. And we were, we were fast friends Mm -hmm. And we literally said, oh, what's the worst that could happen? Let's, let's try and work together. What's, are you guys like visioning at this time? Are you trying to say this? Is We're just I saying, want? let's open want? up something. Okay. And so, you know, and to him, his big thing was, I want to open up something that has soul to it and energy, but nothing too fancy. And I had been with my, you know, both Indigo and Six Degrees were contemporary American restaurants that were trying to push the envelope for the towns that they were in at the time. Now, Chicago, pushing the envelope meant La Francais or Charlie Trotter. We were definitely not going to be that. So we were like, how do we mix being a contemporary American restaurant that still has a pulse and an energy and a vibe to it, but not in one of the big time neighborhoods? You know, not Gold Coast, not River North. So we were like, let's, let's find a neighborhood place to do a fun, energetic restaurant with a great chef that also has like a bar scene and nightlife to it. That was the very rough sketch from the original conversation. Um, And then we went to work to try to find something. Okay. Um, So one of the big lessons I've learned, it seems like 
if you can find if you can find out where the fringe is in your community or w- things seem to always happen on the fringe on the edge was this going on in the back when you're thinking of location are you trying to like we don't want to be in an, an established community we want to be on the on the the leading edge of a community that's coming is that what was well going i think on? at that point we were just looking at like price per square foot we were okay. just like well we're not going to pay 45 dollars a foot in river north you know yeah. or whatever it was at that point we were just once again middle class sensible yeah we wanted to be you know, and, and we had this, you know, Rob always brought up the, the middleweight analogy. We don't need to be heavyweights. Let's just be middleweights. Yeah. Be out here and do this. And, you know, Lincoln Park at the time, um, you know, Gianni was across the street and Vinci was across the street and they had been there for a long, long time. And it seemed like a neighborhood that had some safety in it, that that had a pre-theater. And if you could really connect with the destination crowd, you could maybe hit a home run. Because you could fill up before theater, and they could fill up that destination turn and get some late night. And we're like, man, you, we might be able to do really well yeah. here. And it had a good lease. And we said, okay. So we opened Boca on four hundred and fifty thousand dollars in two thousand and three. Okay, we're, we're eighteen years ago um, with a chef that we had met through an ad in the Chicago Reader. We'd put an ad out and we'd done tastings and interviews with several chefs and Giuseppe Scarato, who had been the chef de cuisine at MK, became our original chef there. And we were just these kind of unknowns and we were doing a little bit of business. And then one day, somebody from Chicago Magazine came by and said, Penny Pollock and Dennis, or Dennis Ray Wheaton and uh, Dennis Ray Wheaton wrote a really great review about you and it's about to come out in Chicago Magazine. And we're like, really? Open the floodgates. And it came out. And, you know, it, and, uh, they wrote this like amazing review and we got really busy. Yeah. And it's amazing how that used to happen back. Not something, it still happens today, but not like it used to, like one review back in the day would have, could like set you up for life. Right. It could have, you yeah. know, the, you, back then it was like you had a, you had the Tribune review, the Sun Times review, the reader review and Chicago magazine. Those were really the four reviews that you were going to get. And if you did not get a good review in those four, you were probably going to be done. Now, the Tribune and the Sun-Times didn't even review us when we first opened. Only review that we got was the Reader and and, uh, Chicago Magazine. And that Chicago Magazine interview kind of like set us up. Nice. And uh, it was pretty exciting. It was like, it was like, because I kind of felt for myself, you know, oh my God, I'm I'm back. (laughs) And for Rob, you know, Rob, you know, went from being very successful in nightclubs to, to shifting over to the restaurant business. So we were both kind of like trying to find our footing. Yeah. Me find my footing back and find my footing in Chicago, him finding footing in, in a new genre. And so that brought us really tight together because, you know, we were, we were in this, we were sitting across the bar from each other every single night and trying to build an architecture for what is the restaurant group now. What and, do those conversations look like? You essentially you're, you're visioning, Right, you're saying who do we want to be? Like, start with the end in mind. What are we doing next, and And how do we structure this? And originally, it was well, you know what, Giuseppe Scarato is a great chef. Let's open up a second restaurant with him, and we did that. And then the conversation took a little bit of a turn because we were like, maybe it doesn't make sense to do one company around one chef. Maybe it's one company around several chefs because then no matter what we think of wanting to do, like we both love sushi and we're like, well, we can't do a sushi restaurant with Giuseppe Scarato. Yeah. 
So are, are we, are we scouts at this point? Are we building a system that could be used anywhere? And then every time we open up a new place, it's up to us and the chef to conceptualize it, design it, make it feel different. And so we knew who we didn't want to be. We knew operators where all their restaurants looked the same, no matter what concept they were. And then we knew people who had one chef that all the restaurants kind of tasted the same. And that was the biggest thing that we knew. We were like, we're like, that's, we don't want to be that. We want to be people who walk into our restaurants and can't necessarily recognize or taste that it's by the same restaurant group. And that's okay. Okay. So I want to unpackage that more, but I really want to learn more about your relationship with Rob first, like as far as how you guys compliment each other. Because one of the biggest lessons on the show is find a partner that compliments you, that's strong where you're weak. So what lanes were you guys in? How did you, what, what did that, that yeah. look like getting started? Like, what were you responsible for? Yep. What was he responsible for? And how did that make you guys better? So Rob was really great at like, he's great at real estate. He was very good at like navigating permits and city hall and licensing. Um, he was very good about, about cost controls, not necessarily like m- looking at a PL and, and, and doing, you know, a, a micro PL analyzation, but he was very good at like, nothing was going to get out the door on him and nobody was going to steal from him. Okay. You know, he was, he was, he was tight in that regard. And then I was more, you know, training, working a floor, maybe more looking at the actual P and L standpoint. Um, we were both guys who could walk a dining room and talk to guests and touch tables and that sort of thing. And then I think after a while, all of those skill sets just kind of bled into each other. Now it's been 20 something years together or 20 years together. And we do a lot of the same things, but I think if you looked at us now still, it's like when we go to open up a restaurant, you know, Rob's working on the real estate and he's the liaison with the construction team. And I'm working with the kitchen designer and I'm working on, you know, the, the, the front of the house stuff. Um, and, and, you know, so we, we still kind of veer off a little bit, but we also kind of bleed into each other a bit. Okay. Um, so it sounds like Rob in early days was more operations and you were more culture training. Yeah, yeah maybe, but, but no, it, you know, it's like, I would say like he would negotiate the lease. Um, I would be at the management meeting going over every line of the P and L. Okay. I, so it's it's not as simple as that. Yeah, I mean, there's so we were many both we're, yeah. we're both math guys. Okay, you know, I, I was I was always great at math. Um, I, I've I've become that guy who's very into like P and Ls and money management and, and and that sort of thing. He thinks about it maybe in a more macro sense than I do. Okay, deals being made, negotiating. So he's big picture vision. You're more up close detail. Yeah. Okay. But it's not that easy. Okay. It's more of like a middle. You, sound, you guys both sound like 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 in the middle kind of dudes. We're in every yeah. conversation together, yeah. Yeah. and maybe one of us just leans a little bit more in one certain way. But it's you know it's it's tough. I wouldn't put either of us in a box because we all we both do all of those things. Yeah. And um, when did when exactly did Giuseppe come on? 
So just this is Giuseppe Scarato, not Giuseppe Tintori. So Giuseppe Scarato was our original chef. Oh, he worked. What are the two, odds you have two two Giuseppe's? <laughs> yeah. Giuseppe Scarato was a Boca from '03 to '06. Okay. And Giuseppe started, I believe, on Valentine's Day, 2007. So he's been with us for 14 years. Giuseppe Tintori. Okay. So he became the chef at Boca. And then a guy named Ben Browning was the chef at Landmark. Ryan Poley was our chef at Perennial. And then Stephanie Eiser was the chef at Girl and the Goat. So our first four chefs were, were those four. Yeah. But the, the big thing that I'm hearing from you, and I, I pulled this from, you, you probably know this name, um, his name, oh, just Cameron Mitchell, Mitchell Restaurant yeah, Group. Yeah, sure. So Cameron was a guest in the show. And what I'm hearing from you is very similar to what he said is the trick to scaling is one of the elements to scaling, I should say, because there's so many variables is figuring out you, what your systems and processes and your chassis is like the, the inner work. It's like a car, right? Like you, the, the, the inner workings of a car are the same. Different models just have a different, different exterior, different brand, maybe like, so the, the trick is you focus on the systems, the processes, the, the behind the scenes, the, the back of back of house kind of stuff. And then you, you, plug in somebody who focuses on the, the 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 technical detail, the thing that they're doing, the the art, the craft, and then you're just a supportive role and it's it's all about them. And then you just have to change the exterior for every new restaurant. Not literally, but you know what I'm saying. No. Is, does that line up with what I'm hearing? No, it's or? it's it's totally right. Um we have symmetrical systems that exist in every single restaurant. They're not doing inventory or you know, uh, in, in a different way, a girl and the goat than they are at GT fish. Yeah. Um, you know, just because little goat's a diner and Boca's a Michelin starred restaurant, you know, we're not doing our receiving there or the way we run our prep teams or the way we do our financial forum in any different way. It's the same exact way we do it at both restaurants. Okay. Um, so, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. And they're just same. It's the same engine in a different in a different in a different body. So one of the things that you I think is a is holding this industry back is this mentality of there isn't enough. If I, I can't bring on another partner, how am I going to survive? I mean, I can barely survive on my own. How are we going to afford a partner, somebody else that's like that's cutting into the profits and all of this? I I personally think that you can't do it alone anymore. If you want to be competitive, you need to have partners. Uh, and you tend to have that. It seems like you have that same mentality. It's terrible logic. <laughs> you think you so? know, yeah. Because Wait, which part's terrible? Well, the, the, the logic of that. I can't afford to bring another partner. on. Okay. You can't afford not to bring another partner. I, on. Okay. Yes. Okay. This is my mentality, but I want to hear from you. So ex- explain yourself. Well, so you're opening up multiple restaurants. You shouldn't open up a multiple, another restaurant until you've actually figured out the model on your first restaurant. Mm-hmm. So let's say you open up restaurant a and you open it up for 500,000. And you figure out how to how to operate a restaurant that makes two hundred thousand dollars a year. So you've paid it off, and it's year three, and you go, let's open up another restaurant. Now, the dumb person holds you know holds it too close to themselves and says, I can't afford to give any equity away to anybody else. Well, that's not true because you're living off that first restaurant that you opened right now. And the only way the second restaurant's going to work is if you give it the same energy and respect that you gave that first restaurant. And you physically cannot. But you've just split <laughs> yourself in two. Yeah, it's impossible. So you need to find someone else who is able to execute the ideas that you put into your very first restaurant because ideas are great, but they have to be executed by mm. somebody. So you open up that second restaurant. Once you figure out that you've built an engine that can actually win the Indy 500, and you're like, yes, 
<clears throat> I can take this I can take this engine and put it into here, but now I need somebody who's going to make it appear different, feel different, and attract a different crowd mm. than someone else does. That's the soul. To, uh, that's the soul of it, yes. correct. And so to us, that was, you look at, like when we really figured who we were as a group, and that was Boca and Girl and the Goat and GT Fish and Belena, and we started opening up real concepts, we were like, okay, now the restaurants can distinguish themselves from each other. We're using these symmetrical systems, and then there's a Stephanie Izard and a Chris Pandell and a Giuseppe Tintori and a Lee Wolin and all these people that are so passionate about their craft and what they do that they're not only that it's not only got our life in it, they're breathing their own lives into yes. it. And Soul. people aren't yeah. even thinking about Boca Restaurant Group. Mm-hmm. They're thinking, let's go see Lee. Let's go see Stephanie. Yeah. Let's go see Giuseppe. Let's go see Chris. Let's go see Gene Cotto. You know. Th- that's how you do it. And so we we give equity, true equity, not phantom equity, to all of these chefs that we're partners with mm. and also to some of the people that are that are in our front of the house. And we've always felt like that's an easy gift because you're opening up a new restaurant <clears throat> and you give 5, 10, 15, 20% of equity away. Who cares? Okay. I... I want to figure out, and I think this is where people get caught up is, is the, the partnership agreements. How do you protect yourself? All those variables that come with partnerships. Um, but oh, I had a thought and of course it escaped me, but I, I think, can jump on that real quick if you want to. What's that? What you were just saying. No, I, the thought just came back, but I, yeah. yes, I do. So the, it's the idea that get this thought that I can't afford to give away 50%. It's, it's, it's 50% that you would have never otherwise had access to. Correct. It, wouldn't, it wasn't even going to, it wasn't even going to make that amount of money. Yeah. 50% of zero is zero. Yeah. 50% of minus 100. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and so obviously Stephanie Izard is a freaking power. She's genius. She's smart. She works her tail off. There's no girl in the goat without yeah. Stephanie Izzard. But, but I really want to get into like just mindset, yeah. which is like, what is the mindset? And the mindset is like, what is the mindset? Like, what is the mindset you have to get to, to convince yourself to have this? It's the, the word that comes to my mind is abundance, right? It's just this abundance of mindset that there's enough for everybody. Generosity reciprocates. Yeah. And you, that, that, that if you, if you believe in people and you, you show them that trust and you give them ownership of it, you know, They'll treat it as such. Yeah. And it's not about you. And that's one of the biggest things I've learned that success in life is not about you. It's about everybody else. Well, I'll tell you this. If you know, you go back, you go back 30 years ago and if somebody had come up to me and said, Kevin, I'm going to open up a restaurant and I'll give you 10% of it to run it. I would have said, absolutely. Let's go. And they would have gotten so much out of me for that 10%. Yeah. Now, instead I went off on my own and, and, and did my own thing. But you know, if you, if, if somebody had caught any of these guys, you know, if you, if you had caught a Caroline Stein or a Bobby Stuckey or a Greg Gorday or, or, you know, Naomi Pomeroy or, you know, any of these great operators, if you'd caught them at a certain point and said, you know, I'll give you equity it would have been a huge success for well, anybody. Relativity is everything though, right? It Relative is. to that point in your career earlier on, that seems like a great deal. Um, is it 10, what are, you, are you saying 10% of profit or are you saying 10% of net? I'm saying 10% of net. 
equity. Okay. So they would get 10% of distributable cash. And you Got can it. do this a million different ways. You know, so the, yeah, let's kind of get and in. we and we do it different ways, but let's let's take an example of a deal that we've done. You know, like like, um, you know, twenty percent given we've given twenty percent equity before to someone of a restaurant um, that they put up, had to put up no money for. Um, you know, sometimes it is it takes three years to vest. They'll get paid based on their equity within those three years, but it doesn't become their stock for three years. And within those three years, they're an at-will employee. And on the on, on the anniversary of the of of thirty six months, that becomes their true stock to do whatever they want so with. W- what is it about this approach that you like? Well, I like it because it gives you 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 don't always know who you're going to be a partner with until your partner's with him and you can do everything you can to vet it it's a, it's a honeymoon period it's a honeymoon period and so within the that first 36 months it's a it's a long enough time that you get to know him it's a short enough time that you know it's you're respecting their time you're respecting their out. time too if it doesn't work out exactly yeah. and so for us it's it's pretty much always worked Um, and, and yeah, you know, at this point we've been partners with Steph long enough. Like, you know, I mean, she, she could, she could do something with somebody else if she wanted to, but it's never happened. We've done, we've done, you know, we're about to do our sixth restaurant together. Is it six? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's what gets cool is that, um, it's this idea that like, so when we're saying I'm all over the place, I have so many questions for you right now. Uh, back before I unpackage what I was about to say back to this idea, when you're saying equity, you're saying, um, say after all the bills are paid, when, when looking at like what's left over, like what's, what's there to be distributed amongst all the partners, uh, you're saying 20% of that. I'm talking about individual LLC. So there's two different things here. So first of all, there's Boca group LLC, which Boca group LLC is just what Rob and I own of every single place. Okay. So, so the Boca Group LLC gets a percentage of every restaurant. Gets a percentage of every single restaurant. And get, um, you know, some of the restaurants are self-funded by us. Some of them we've taken investors on. Whatever, whatever Boca Group owns of the restaurant, that's what Boca Group, Boca Restaurant Group is. And then each individual LLC, like you know, for instance, you know, Girl and the Goat, that individual LLC, you know, Stephanie owns part of that individual LLC. So every quarter we look at cash flow, we look at what's sitting in the bank, and we make an, an estimate of what we're going to distribute based on what's left in the bank, and then she gets that percentage of it. Okay, so Steph, so wh- I, I know the answer to this question, but just in case somebody who's listening yep. to this doesn't know, why? What's the significance of developing an LLC? So an LLC, you can distribute cash at a different percentage than people actually own of it. Okay. So let's say I was going to build a restaurant and it was going to cost a million dollars. And I took 10 investors who gave me $100,000 each. So a million dollars was the entire raise of the restaurant. And for that, I gave them 40% ownership of the place. But if I'm only going to pay them 40% of what the restaurant makes every time there's distributable cash, it's going to take them forever to get paid back. Mm-hmm. So you distribute 80% of the profits until their principal gets paid back. Okay. And then it flips to 60% on the promote side, 40% to the investor side. Six, the promote side is that like sweat equity side. Okay. So you can only do that under an LLC. In a C corporation, you would have to distribute exactly what equity people had to themselves. LLC allows you to distribute at a different level 
than what they actually own of it. Okay, <clears throat> got you. So every time you open a restaurant with Stephanie, <laughs> I think you said there's six now. You're doing well, let's business. See. Girl on the Goat, Duck Duck Goat, Little Goat, Cabra, and Girl on the Goat LA. Really five, yeah. Okay. Sorry. But every time you're doing business with her LLC, and her is she creating a new LLC for each one of these restaurants? No, we're creating a new LLC. So, but she so, has her own LLC. No, no, okay. no. So, 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 for instance, Lamb and the Goat is is you know like you know is Girl on the Goat, and and that that individual LLC is owned by you know by Boca Restaurant Group and by Stephanie. Gotcha, gotcha. And then Boca Restaurant Group is just the amount that we own in Lamb and the Goat is with is owned by Boca Restaurant. Group, gotcha, okay. Which cool. is owned by Rob and I. All right, thank you for breaking that down. And the, <laughs> yeah, it's, I think this is the stuff that intimidates people, but we don't. you don't ever hear people talking about how to set nope. this up, which is why I'm, I'm going there. And it's weird sometimes. And people can get very defensive, like, how dare you ask about financials and nope. business structure? Here, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you how we started. Yeah. Boca, our first, our first Boca LLC, our first LLC, um, we, we raised $450,000 from four investors, you know? And so they get, they got 40% ownership for that $450,000 and Rob and I had 60%. Got it. Um, and so we paid them back 80% of the principal until that 450,000 got paid back, you know, which took like two and a half years and then it flipped to 60% us, 40% them. Okay. Got it. Beautiful. Um, thank you for getting into that. One yeah. thing that's hovering over me that I'm curious about, we got to think about wrapping. I can't believe how fast time is going with <laughs> you. Um, we, we covered the benefits from your perspective, uh, you and Rob's perspective of finding chef partners. Yeah. Uh, because I mean, you, you can divide and conquer, right? You can have their soul be injected into the space with your systems and general culture and vision of the great, the greater, bigger picture, right? What's in it for them? Like what are the, from a, a I mean, from a a rest a chef's perspective, why would they say why would I give up all that equity when I can own my own restaurant and own one hundred percent of it? What are the benefits of having a group like you guys come in and manage the back of back house? Well, I, th- I think the chefs could answer that better than I could. But what they what they would all tell you is is like if you know if Lee Wollen when it opened up his own restaurant tomorrow. He'd be like, okay, um, I'm going to have to hire a graphic design company and I'm going to have to hire an accountant and I don't know if they know what they're doing or not and I'm going to have to hire a designer and I'm going to have to go raise money. They're still working for somebody. Yeah. They're, they're still going to have to go out and find money from someone and a lot of times those are people that don't understand the restaurant business that have no value add. Yeah. So no matter what, Unless this person's independently wealthy, they still have to find somebody with money. Yeah. And they're still going to have partners. This lets them stay in their lane, which is the other variable, too. That Correct. It lets them focus on what they truly love. 100%. Because you open a restaurant, you open any business, there's going to be parts of that that you just want nothing to do with. Right? Like oh. you just want to do what you love, but you have to do everything. It's like the e myth, like the entrepreneurial myth that like it will be easier when you go into business for yourself, but it's not. So you absorb. There's a lot, there's a lot, of, there's a lot of really awful terrible stuff about the restaurant business <laughs> yeah. is not fun to deal with but you absorb a lot of that and we you do. let them focus on what's important yeah the the food and we the, try to yeah. they still have to they still have to encounter stuff that's tough too yeah but. yeah um so one of the things i'm curious about and we'll start to wrap up i mean now paint the picture current current day like what what is what consists of boca restaurant group well we just got through a pandemic so you go back you know 18 months ago when this whole thing happened when it was 16 months ago 
Um, and, uh, you know, we got, we got punched in the face just like everybody else did. It was really brutal and terrible. And what it shows for a lot of people across the United States is the fragility of the restaurant model. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like specifically, especially the sector of the industry that you were most involved in, which was high touch chef driven sit down table service. Nobody got hit harder than that. Yeah. And that was the majority or all of your concepts. Were there any quick QR, QSR or fast casual? We had, we were developing Gigi's chicken, which is a QSR, which we're going to open a storefront for. And we were doing that out of Boca and that certainly helped Boca, but everything else was service. Yeah. And so we got the shit kicked out of yeah. us. Like, like, like a lot of people did. Um, and it was, you know, it, it was hard for everybody who worked in the restaurant business, the poor people who the poor, hardworking people who are the lifeblood of our restaurants, who didn't know what was happening. And, you know, a lot of people got laid off and didn't know when their next paycheck was coming. It's just it was brutal for everybody involved. And, you know, your heart hurt for every for all the hardworking people that worked for our company. And my heart hurt for all those people who might have just started in this business. Think mm-hmm. about people who just opened a restaurant. Like Lazy Days Cafe me yeah. was done. I mean, even if you Indigo opened, Wine Bar yeah. me, done. I mean, if you had opened within a few months of COVID nineteen kicking off, you wouldn't have gotten any of the support you needed nope. from the government. I would have been I'd be i I would have been completely done. Yeah. And I thought about that all the time and I was grateful that we could take a lot of punches. Yeah. even though it was really, really difficult. So now we're on the other side of it. We're doing like 65 to 70% of the business that we did in 2019. And we're, we're building things back. And, and there are a lot of good things that come with that. Yeah, I think it's going to explode, though. I think in the next two months, things are going to, like the, the hammer is going to drop. Yeah. And it's going to be, it's going to be hard because but, there's no workforce out there. No, there's, there's no workforce. But you know what? It does allow you right now to really take a good look at yourself in the mirror as a company and all of the things that you do and you're able to rebuild some things maybe in a better way. Yeah. Um, and so we've taken that opportunity over the last year and said, you know what? Maybe we do need a director of inclusion within our company. A director of inclusion. Yeah. Is that a role? It is a role. Okay. So like, like kind of like HR it's or ba- like- well, it's basically somebody who, who grades us, um, within our company to make sure that, that, we're representing equity okay. within Boca Restaurant Group in a suitable way. I mean, that's and, and having somebody that doesn't pull any punches who says, "No, you're fucking up here." Yeah, you don't have systems in in in, the, in place that that, that allow um, uh, for growth of certain people within your company. I love and that. so so those are the kind of things that we've been able to look at in this last year and say, "Okay, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to build a better company for tomorrow." Right now. Um, and I, I think that's what we're doing right now. And so in this period where there aren't enough people to work for restaurants around the country, I think we're all looking at ourselves and saying, well, it's going to be really competitive. So let's build a better company, a healthier company, a company that really cares about wellness with its workers. And let's come out of this better and stronger and and you know be as competitive about being the best company to work for as we are the best company for our guests. Yeah. and I think this is the, this is the future of the industry. Honestly, I think, and I've been saying this. I, should, I wish I wrote a book three years ago so I could say I said I said so. The, yeah. the the future of the industry is it's it's all about its people. It's all about you. You need this is one of the few industries left that can't be automated completely with with you can't automate hospitality. You can't. You can't put a robot to do human things. Nope. 
AI is coming a long way, but it's still not quite there yet. It's still not as good as a human, right? Uh, and, and I think that the, the better you take care of your people, the, the better you're going to attract, the, the better quality people you're going to uh, attract yourself. It's, it's all obvious, right? Yep. Um, so one of the things I'm curious about before we go into the speed round uh, is, and we have to think holistically because there's just so many moving parts within your organization. There's so many restaurants involved, but how have you evolved your systems in the past five or six years? Because you, you said constant evolution, constantly growing. What are the biggest things you've done systematically, culturally, you said to be more focused on the, the individual uh, wellness is something that you're doing to change. But what about the hard systems that are yeah. the backbone of all these different brands? I, I think one of the turning points, uh, two people that I can point to as a big turning point, and one's Jamie Madonia, our CFO, and one's Julie Rue is our director of strategic initiatives. Julie was somebody who worked for Microsoft who was just intrigued by the restaurant business and wrote us a letter and said, would you consider giving me an internship? And she was well-established yeah. at Microsoft at this point. I need to pause real quick yeah. because I need to set you up because one of the things we discussed in our first interview yes. is that your brands right now are really just all about creating opportunity for others. That's where you were when we left off Yeah, is that was your focus. It's yep. all about creating opportunity for others. Yeah. So Julie comes and she works. She basically did the same internship we did um, for women's leadership with the James Beard Foundation, which was, you're going to do a different job every single month. And she literally smoked every job. She like expedited for the first time at GT Prime and Giuseppe's hard to please. And he was like, mm, she's probably the best expediter. <laughs> <laughs> so she killed it. And she's so smart that we were able to get, like I was able to say to her like, Julie, tell me how much it costs to make a dollar in pastry at every single restaurant. This is not going to be easy because you're going to have to give credit for the pastry departments that make bread or have pastry on savory dishes and blah, blah, blah. And she would come back with a book that was 10 times better than my expectation was of it. And then Jamie on the flip side of it is one of those rare CFOs that has a, you know, 180 IQ of restaurants and 180 IQ of numbers and can use both of those things and she's intuitive. She stays ahead of things. She creates numbers that are, uh, that, that, are, that are easy to navigate and easy for people to make behavioral changes based on those. And she creates actionable items for people. So those two, along with Ian Goldberg, our COO, created this financial forum that is kind of like, I would say it's like half milk and half cream. Like half of the time at this forum, we talk about how to make the restaurants a better place. And the other half... We talk about numbers and we compare and contrast all the numbers of all our restaurants together. And there's always somebody that gets up and does a best practices lesson mm. in front of everybody. Um, it's like, you know, Gene Cotto is going to talk about how he manages food cost. And Gene gets up and he talks about his stuff. And so there's always this lesson that Where we can Where does this all live? We do this at Swift and Sons because it's big and we can. And we that's can, a physical location. That's one of our, that's our steakhouse, yeah. but that's where we hold the financial forum usually. Um, but our financial office, you know, for years we have two corporate offices, our financial office above Girl and the Goat, and then we have a corporate office above Momotaro. Um, our entire corporate team is about 45 people. Yeah. And the cool thing is you have all the same systems in every one of your restaurants. So the, the how is the same. So those being able to compare is really powerful because you're, it is. Yeah. So you can really see, you can really constantly like, okay, well how, how, how are you crushing that number? How did you get that down? So yeah. like, and, and then now you have the collective of the minds coming together and you're constantly challenging, improving each other. I think that's so powerful, but you also have to understand each restaurant. So you have to look and you'd be like, well, why would little goats, non-alcoholic 
cost be so much higher than everybody else? And you're like, because we do like 4,000 brunches every weekend and people use a lot of cream. Yeah. And right. you're like, ah, oh, that makes sense. Right. So it's not as easy just to say, why is that higher or lower? But you can look at GT Prime and Swift and & Sons and look at their product mixes that are almost exactly the same on beverage and say, why does one have two points higher liquor costs than the other one? That shouldn't be right. We're running the same product mix. That's just like bad management. So there's been a lot of that that we've seen and we've been like, well, what are you doing? Oh, well, we're doing this. And you're like, oh, that makes sense. So the original question was, <laughs> what are you doing to evolve your systems and your processes? And it sounds like you've created a forum to have a, a meeting of a minds to come together to compare and contrast and constantly evolve. As my friend Will Gadara says, what would you do if you knew you wouldn't fail? So you just throw something out and say, well, why don't we just do this every month? So I think there's, I think we're open to anybody saying something like that. Like, th Hey guys, throw a bunch of stuff up against the wall yeah, and we'll see if it works or not. I think the, the, the and I cut you short. I'm cutting you short. No, nope. the big part of that, that I think as far as mindset goes is you have to keep in mind that you have all these incredible people working for you and you are the, the sum of all those people. But so, so often we, we never open the valve to that resource. We just say, you do this thing. That's it. But when you open the valve to that potential energy, that mind that they have, and then you create systems to open up that, that information, you get this flood of creativity and just creative problem solving that, but you have to make time for it. You have to block time to open those channels and to, to let the ideas flow. And that sounds like that's the biggest thing that you're doing that's different. I say that all the time. I am the sum of the these, I don't know how many people have ever worked with me. I don't know, 100,000 people. Yeah. I am truly the sum of all those people. Yeah. And if you... You know, I think there's a lot of people that truly think they're the smartest people in the room and they close themselves off to all these ideas of all these people. Um, and it's, it's such a huge mistake because you're going to get a lot of bad ideas, but a hundred bad, the one good idea is worth, is it. worth a thousand yeah. bad ideas. I think you got to look at like your mind is a battery. My mind is a battery and isolating when we're isolated. That's just so much potential energy. But when you combine, when, when you join those batteries together, that's so much more potential energy and really like consciousness. The mind is the one thing that really is uniquely us like awareness. Right. And we can compound those things like that, that I don't know, maybe I'm getting a little too woo woo right now, but like, it's just so powerful once you understand that like there's a collective like singularity happening here and we need to like open up those channels to get the most well, out of it. Well, I think even within other companies too. Yeah. Like I think one of the bad parts of the restaurant business is we all held our cards way too close to our chest. Yeah. That like you would run into another operator on the street and they would be like, how's it going? You're like, oh, I'm so busy. It's so crazy. How about you? And they'd be like, oh, I'm so busy too. It's yeah. impossible. And we were all afraid to like show any vulnerability Ego. Because we thought that ego, and we thought you somebody back would like in Springfield, or was it? No, that was you in Nashville. Me in Nashville. Yeah, too much ego, man. And so now, what the pandemic did is, you know, it was a rare week when I wasn't on the phone with, you know, uh, R.J. Melman or Jay Steber from Lettuce or or Steve Lombardo or Donnie Medea or you know Greg Schulson from from Burrito Beach or you know my friends like a uh, you know. Um, Sean Feeney that owns Lily in New York or, or, or Will Goddard. I mean, we were all constantly chatting about what was going on and we were, we were saying what was really happening. Yeah. I'm dying right now. Yeah. 
I mean, that's a problem with our industry, which I, which I think is why we need to have these conversations more often. We need to be more vulnerable. And I think the only way we're going to transform the industry, again, this, the mission statement of this podcast, inspire, empower, and transform, is by coming together and getting open, getting honest, and sharing. Where am I? Yeah. Where are you? Where do we need to be? And how do we get there? Right? So how, where do we need to be? What's the general census after talking to all these people? Like, what are you guys saying? There needs to be a model that is not as fragile. We, we, in the old days, you know, we'd say, Hey, let's make 20% profit. And then for some reason, all of a sudden, a lot of restaurants are okay with making four to 5% profit and always just barely hanging on. And at the same time, not being able to pay their, their hard workers, not enough money. Yeah. And so I keep saying this t-shirt that I'm wearing right now was what, you know, cost, I don't know, $15 30 years ago. This t-shirt cost me $70 now, but that hamburger you ate at the sit down restaurant is the same freaking 16 bucks. And so prices have to go up at some point Mm. so we can pay people better. So we're not constantly, you know, just accepting this fragile model. And within that, we can, we can have healthier systems and healthier restaurants. What has to happen for prices to go up? I, some people just got to jump off a cliff and do it. Yeah. I mean, but I think you know, cl- not just some, I think everyone, and yeah, I think but that's I, the power of I, sharing information. But yeah. But you know, how do you do that without collusion? Now, the, <laughs> but here's the thing. I feel like now's the time. If there was a time for anything to happen, it's going to go up. It's, it's got now, to, but we can communicate. We can get messages out. Like I, I'm talking to you, man. I'm, Eric Cachatori from East Bumfuck, New Hampshire, talking to you, like the leader of Boca Restaurant, Kevin Bame, like, and you're sharing your thoughts, and your thoughts are going to reach thousands of people in a couple of weeks. And it's just it's, it's a cultural shift, in my opinion, that needs to change. Where restaurants need to say, "Hey, enough is enough." No, we react to markets. Yep. The restaurant industry has been reactive for as long as it exists. I think the new cost of goods sold number is around 22%. Yeah, but, and I think the the labor number is around 40%. Mm-hmm. And so that that's that's 62. Yeah. And then occupancy is 6 to 7%. So that's, that's 69. Silo is now about 20%. That leaves eleven percent profit, mm-hmm. and I think that that's a I think that's a fair place for everybody to live is like eleven to twelve percent profit. Yeah, and at forty percent labor, you can pay people a, you can pay people a good wage. Yeah, and eleven twelve percent profit, you can still put a decent amount into your restaurants and be able to get that money back. That we just we, that's where we got to find it. Yeah, I think, between twelve and fifteen percent, yeah. I think we can I think we can get back there, but. Prices are going to go up. I mean, lumber prices are out of control right now. Yeah, the- and nobody thinks twice about it. But as soon as you, as soon as a hamburger is nineteen dollars, it's fucking crazy. Yeah, I think the thing is, is it comes down to what the restaurant industry has been doing for a while now is transforming the world. And I think the restaurant industry really is going to change the world because we educate people. You saw it with the, the farm to table. Yep. You saw it with, we're, we're saying like the, we, we are not going to, when we put our foot down, the thing is the world has to follow. We're the second largest industry in the world. Yeah. You know, like people have to kind of follow. So I think by communicating and saying, Hey, like we need to educate the public. This is what your food that you want. Healthy, wholesome, organically grown, locally grown food yes. that you want costs and we fucked shit up in the past by cutting corners and trying to do make things convenient and easy and cheap and right. and like that, we don't want to cut corners yeah. but here's how much and it's going to cost exactly and that that's the conversation that needs to happen across the and boards i'll tell you this the people have spoken yeah. we we have 
whatever inventory we have out there right now, post pandemic, people are coming in and they want to come in and they want yeah. to be in restaurants. I'm so I'm like jazzed up right now. I'm loving the conversation. I wish we could. Do go. you feel unstoppable? I feel unstoppable, man. I really do. This has been great. Um, we do have to wrap things up. Uh, we have to bust out a quick speed round. Yep. So anything that hasn't come out in this free flowing portion of the conversation, drop it on me. I got one story. Yeah, short one. Give it to me. Years ago at, at Swift and Sons, we had just opened, and, a, and an operator from Green Bay came in, and and uh, he'd owned his own restaurant for fifty years. He was a friend of a friend, and. And while we were talking, a guy came up and he was like, he was like, oh my God, Frank, I can't believe you're here. It's so nice to see you. And he gave him a big hug and he said, man, the, the, the night I spent with you after the Super Bowl was the greatest night I've ever had in my entire life. And he was like, that is Frank was like, oh my wow. God, that's so sweet. And he gave him like a kiss on both sides of the cheek. And he's like, he's he goes, I love you, Frank. And Frank's like, I love you too, man. And the guy walked off and Frank looked at me and he goes, two things. One. I have no idea who that man is. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, two, if the greatest night of his life was a night that I can't even remember, he goes, then my life must be pretty good. That's awesome. And that's the way I think about the restaurant business is we share all these beautiful nights with people and, you know, and it's, it's so beautiful at its best. The restaurant business is amazing. Yeah. Yes. Do we have a lot of problems? We have a shitload of them, but at its best, it's a really fucking great life, man. I love that, man. Awesome. Great stuff. We are going to take one more quick break to thank our sponsors, and then we're going to bust out a true speed round. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using like toast to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box. Bento Box delivers a restaurant online marketing and commerce platform to help restaurants succeed by giving them back control of their presence, profits, and experience. Bento Box helps new restaurants get started with websites, online ordering, and marketing. You probably already knew about the websites. I mean, every leading restaurateur out there seems like they're using Bento Box, and that's because their brand building websites are designed exclusively for the needs of 
of a restaurant. Bento Box builds it for you, and then they give you control to update things as you need, like menus, hours, and homepage alerts. Beyond awesome websites, you're also getting ordering. Open new revenue channels with online ordering, online catering, and e-commerce so you can sell things like gift cards and merch. And in addition, you're also getting marketing tools. Bento Box makes it easy to stay connected to your diners with pre-built automated email campaigns, built-in SEO, loyalty rewards programs, and more. All of this included with every Bento Box subscription. You should also know that Bento Box has brand new packages designed with the needs of new restaurants in mind. Get everything you need to get started marketing before you even open and succeed from day one. Current Bento Box customers have seen an average of 70% more website traffic, seven times more conversions, and five times their average ROI. Schedule a demo at getbento.com slash unstoppable and receive three months free. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Doer. Doer. Meaning you get things done? Yeah. What is your biggest weakness? Say yes too much. How do you overcome it? Say no more. <laughs> Everything you say yes to is something else you're saying no to. This is one quote I heard, which I really love. Yes. Uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? When you're growing your team, what do you want to see? Emotion. Mm. What is your biggest challenge today? Finding staff. How are you overcoming it? Being creative looking for people in new ways, trying to incentivize people in new ways, making our company better and more attractive to people. And you're talking about the inclusiveness that you're doing. You're talking about wellness. What are the other things? More pay, um, uh, more opportunity, more opportunity, better health insurance, uh, profit sharing for managers all over the place. Yeah. Um, what is one code of conduct or behavior, like a core value, if you will, that you teach your team that's across all of your locations? Um, I don't know if we teach this or not, but I think it's a requirement that people actually like taking care of people. And if they don't have that part of, that's not part of their value system is actually liking taking care of people, they're not gonna do well with our company. I love it. Uh, What is one uncommon standard of service that exists in all of your restaurants that's common within Boca Group, but not common throughout the industry to go above and beyond? Whoosh. I would say that something that's very that, that's very different than other companies is we have a we have a what's called a black card system. We have one reservation concierge that exists in our office that you have a black titanium card and the only thing that's on that card is a phone number. And it's a phone number to that person. It's kind of like the card in up in the air that George Clooney gets. Okay. And that person for our best customers will do anything they can to get them inside the restaurants. It doesn't get you anything else. There's no points. There's no free dinners. It's just a person trying like hell to get you in and is available anytime you want them. I love that. Uh, What is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner? You can't say setting the table. You can't say setting the table. (laughs) No, you sure can't. Um, I mean, you can, but we need some more. No, I'm not going to say that. Um, I think that the tenants of Buddhism are 
something that's really important within a good restaurant manager or operator. And I'll tell you why. If you're a captain and you are thinking about the other table that you don't have wine service on yet, or you're thinking about you got to bust this table or somebody's waving a check at you, that you'll never give the proper service to that individual table. Present moment thinking is so important within restaurants. So, I mean, there's so many great Buddhism books out there, but I would say take your pick. There are so many beautiful things about Buddhism that translate symmetrically and beautifully to giving great hospitality. Yeah. And we as humans have an ability, this, we, we hang on to things. And the one thing I understand about Buddhism is that it's just like you can't control the world. It, it's, it's like this. Yeah. I think, I can't remember who said that, but they, but it's like this and just be in the moment and coexist and, and just make the most of what you have. Right well, now. it's also, you know, that bad things are going to happen, but you're prepared for them when they do. Uh, what the Buddha taught, what the Buddha taught. Beautiful. We'll link to that in the show notes. This is going to be stay actually stay tuned to the closing thoughts. I'll share the episode number with you. The next question I have is what is one service you outsource? So this is the idea of you recognize that it's easier to find somebody who does something better than you instead of doing it in house. You outsource not a technology, but like a service. I think it's important, especially if you're doing things in multiple states or with one company, that you both have a service that understands the laws of your own, uh, of, of the state that you're in or the city that you're in, but you also have an HR department within that. So using a company like People Matter. Okay, beautiful. Uh, what is one technology that you've recently implemented in your business that has had a huge, huge impact on communications, efficiencies, profitability, anything along those lines? Um, You know, uh, I, I like... I like Foodager and Beverager from an inventory standpoint a lot. Yep. They are now, uh, they were Foodager and Beverager. I want to say they, they rebranded. I'll make sure to get the right brand, but I want to, oh, it's escaping me. Um, we'll, we will put the right name in there and I'll mention okay. it during the closing thoughts. Uh, the next question I have for you, and this is a doozy. So this is the last question. So be ready for it. All right. Really listen here. If you got the news, you're leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants will be gone with your departure. With the, exce- with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you can leave behind for your legacy, the good of humanity. Imagine you're giving this, this wisdom to your kids. What are the three things you're going to tell them? It's, it's a tough one. Wow. I think I would start with kindness reciprocates. One. Um, I would follow that up with nothing is more important than having true relationships where you know that person loves you and that you love them and that they would do anything for you. There is no, nothing more important than that bond in life. Two. And, uh, three, um, your own mental health, your, your, your happiness, um, how you feel when you go to bed at night and when you wake up in the morning, that's the, that is the true definition of success. Yes. If you can, if you can, if you can be centered and more happy than you are sad and you feel good about yourself, that, that relationship that you have with yourself, um, that's true success. Yeah. It, it ripples throughout everything else. 
It truly does. I've loved this conversation. Uh, and the name of that company, Foodger Beverager, is now Craftable, if you guys are curious. That's and right. it up, craftable.com. Uh, and uh, we wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. Who's somebody you respect and admire in this industry? Somebody that if you found out I got on the show tomorrow, you'd be listening to that episode. Um, I'd like to, to call out um, the executive director of the Independent Restaurant Coalition. Okay. Her name is Erica Polmar. Um, uh, I was on the phone with 18 people on March 18th. We formed the IRC with the idea that we didn't have a big enough voice in Washington. And we wrote a a bill with Earl Blumenhauer of Oregon called the Restaurants Act, um, which eventually passed the House of Representatives and ultimately became the $28.6 billion in funding that got, that went to restaurants Erica Polmar is the executive director of that organization, and she works so hard for people in the restaurant industry every day, and mm-hmm. it's it's stunning what she's done, and 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 her and the you know the 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 thirty or forty people that I've consistently been on the phone with for the last eighteen months. A lot of days we've been on two or three zooms a day together. Um, is have become like a family. Yeah. Where um, is she based? You know, she's in, she's in Portland, Oregon. All right. Look out. Next time I'm out in Portland, I'm coming after you, Erica. I would love to get you on the show. And, uh, if we were interested in joining your team, uh, we want to come join your team. Uh, what's the best way to connect? Maybe we want to follow you on social media. What's, what's the best way to, connect? you can follow me at Kevin Bame Boca. That's K E V I N B O E H M B O K A on Instagram. Feel free to send me a DM there jobs at bocagrp.com and you could send me an email at kevin at bocagrp.com and if anybody ever wants to go have a cup of coffee i'll always sit around and talk restaurants thank you so much kevin for taking the time a second time to join me uh, to go deeper into your story into what makes you you into what makes boca boca there is no questioning my man you are unstoppable thank you so much thank you for having me again this is fun the pleasure was mine thanks Cheers. see you Bam. There's another episode wrapped up with Kevin Bame. Thank you so much for coming on the show, dude, and sharing your story uh, deeper this time around than the first time. And uh, just thank you for your continued support as a guest and as a, a mentor. You were great. Tons of takeaways from today's conversation. Obviously, the one that you guys know I'm going to mention is starting where you can, starting small, scaling slowly over time. And then again, the importance of numbers. And if you guys are willing to admit that you could be better about your numbers, costing and profit and tracking and all these things. I'm telling you the timing is right because Rudy, Mick and I are partnering on a profit and costing course. It's actually live right now. Our first three sessions have been recorded and we're, we're recording these sessions and there's still three more sessions left. You can still join us live and get that high touch hands-on coaching from Rudy himself. And uh, if you can't make us for the live recording or if you can't join us for the live recording, we are going to be having this available uh, at the end of the recording. You can purchase the recorded sessions uh, and be a part of the little micro community that's being started over at Restaurant Unstoppable around this profit and costing methods that Rudy's teaching us. And this stuff is really important, guys. It is how you become profitable is by tracking everything and having systems and checklists built around around this tracking. So if you're interested, come join us. Uh, other things happening in the network. 
I talked to Kevin Bame after our recording and I told him that, hey, you're welcome to join us live in the network and answer listener questions and literally connect with my listeners. And he has not scheduled something yet, but he sounds very interested. So we're going to try to get Kevin live in the network. So if you enjoyed today's episode, head over to restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com and be a part of the conversation. Literally connect with Kevin ask your questions, get mentorship. And I'm going to try to do this with as many as my guests as possible. If they agree, I'll do it. And then I make myself available twice a week in the network just to be there for you. And we're doing countless workshops, uh, really going deep in supporting each other. I would love for you to be a part of the network. Again, restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com. Uh, I think that's pretty much it for today. Uh, as you're listening to this, I'm headed to Philadelphia. If you're in Philadelphia, reach out to me. I'd love to connect. And until next time, peace out.